You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? We're talking ghost town! Who would you see? There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. What would you do? Hey, I'm sorry if the end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The stars are up ahead! Well, get ready to find out, because the comet is coming into your orbit. The legal drinking age is now 10, but... You will need ID. Let's be real. It's the night of the comet. What do you give me if I come back? Texas. Night of the Comet. I'll be taking requests from all you teenage comet zombies. The night the teenagers ruled the world. Yeah! Night of the Comet. The garden of civilization is on us. Fiction, isn't it? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. John Abrams. Hello. Also with us this week is Ms. Angela Mack. Hey there. This week we are celebrating the fifth anniversary of the Projection Booth with the 1984 film from Tom Eberhard, Night of the Comet. The film stars Catherine Mary Stewart as Reg and Kelly Maroney as Samantha, two valley girls who have survived the apocalypse along with a handful of other people. They battle zombies, scavengers, and the government bureaucracy in this high sci-fi adventure. We're going to be getting to spoilers on this one, so if you haven't seen Night of the Comet since it came out in 1984, for God's sakes, just go ahead, turn off the recording, go watch the movie, and come on back. We will still be here. So, John, when was the first time that you saw Night of the Comet, and what did you think? I'll be honest with you, I only saw it a few years ago. It feels like it's one of those movies that it's it's been in a lot of people's lives. You know, it used to, I guess, run on HBO, but our HBO didn't get it for whatever reason. So I only really saw it like maybe five years ago, but I've seen it a bunch of times since I just really dug it. It's like one of those movies that, you know, once you kind of once you find it, if you're on the wavelength, it really works. Most recently, I saw it on the big screen. They had uh, Joe Bob Briggs come to the uh, the Alamo here in New York and uh, he introduced it and kind of gave it a talk up. So that was that was pretty fun. And then actually, Catherine Mary Stewart came not for that, but for the Apple a couple of months later. So. Well, they talked a little bit about that, too. That was pretty cool. How about you, Angela? Well, fittingly enough, I saw it with my sister. God, not to date myself, but I think I was maybe seven years old on Betamax or so. And I thought it was fantastic. You know, I, I think really the mall portion was what I remembered most. Just the freedom of it, of going someplace with your sister and being able to run the whole place. I, I guess as a as a girl... It struck me as, um, you know, perfectly natural that there were these heroines and they were empowered and doing things. So I think for the it left an indelible impression in me that it's kind of a movie I judge other end of the world movies against. I think I saw this one when it was on HBO. I, my HBO did carry it and saw it. Oh, God, I was probably like 15, 16 years old. Pretty much the perfect age uh, to be crushing on the two female leads in this film. <laughs> yep. Not to sound too pervy or anything, but they are very, very uh, attractive young women. So that was pretty nice. And it was great having these 
two really kick-ass heroines in this film. And I've always been a fan of End of the World films. Last year we did a series of End of the World movies just about this time last year. And as I was talking about some of those movies, I kept coming back to Night of the Comet and just how much I enjoy this movie. So uh, thinking maybe some of our audience hasn't heard of this movie or maybe they don't appreciate as as much as they could figured hey what the heck and plus it just makes sense to cover a movie uh for the fifth anniversary of the projection booth where a projection booth saves one of our characters lives so figured it was very fitting with that yeah you know actually mike you just totally blew my mind because my sister and i must have watched this movie you know dozens of times and i always thought it was because of the sister aspect but my sister's gay. I wonder if that's why she watched the movie so many times. <laughs> Could be. They are very cute girls. It's definitely a kind of movie where, you, you know, it's not. It's really not like a pervy, like you just really like them. It's not a, a kind of lascivious. They're just really sweet. It's kind of infectious. Exactly. And they could have gone like titillation, that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, there, there's no boobies in this movie. And <laughs> As far as we get, I think we get Kelly Maroney in her bra at one point. Yeah. That's fine. I just like that these girls are so kick-ass and just, yeah, they're fun to be around. And they're the kind of people where, like, I would like to run into them in the post-apocalypse. And hopefully I wouldn't be a zombie. That, 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 <laughs> yeah, that would be a bad outcome. The premise of the movie is kind of cool. We start off with this whole, uh, there's a comet who's passing by Earth, which its orbit is so big that it hasn't been by Earth for 65 million years. Uh, pretty much coincidental with the uh, disappearance of the dinosaurs on Earth. So we've got this great voiceover at the beginning explaining this and really kind of foreshadowing that things aren't going to necessarily go too well when this comet comes back by again. And we have all of these comet parties and everybody's enjoying the you know, the comet is coming by. And of course I was really reminded of day of the Triffids here with the, the big comet that everybody's so excited to see. And the one poor guy who can't see it, who's in bed uh, in a hospital bandaged up with his eyes and everything. He's one of the few survivors of this apocalypse that is brought about by this comet coming by. Luckily there's no, you know, giant shambling mounds of, of plants coming around and trying to kill people afterwards. But anybody who is caught directly in the tail of the comet just pretty much disintegrates into red dust and people who are partially exposed are either immediately or gradually turned into these kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, I just call them zombies because that's what they really remind me of. They keep a lot of their faculties. They're not just mindless, but they definitely have some violent tendencies. It's sort of like the crazies without the axes and saws and things. Yeah. More uh, wrenches and government bureaucracy. So I love when we meet our main character, Reg, who's played by Catherine Mary Stewart, and she is there at a movie theater, thus the projection booth, and playing a wicked game of Tempest. I have to say that was one of my favorite arcade games of all times. And though it was a little unbelievable that she was able to overwrite somebody's um, high score on the game rather than just put the, push them down, I'll accept that. I'll suspend my disbelief 
and say that that can be possible in this world. But it was so great to hear those sounds again and be able to experience that kind of vicarious uh, video game feeling. You know, just it was uh, really great to hear Tempest because that had one of the best, I can't even say soundtracks, but just like sound mixes, all those sound effects that it had. I've never actually seen that game before, so much. Yeah, I have to say, I I don't think I. Oh man, might be. You guys are making me feel old. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said anything. I'm not even. I'm no it's okay. Chicken. It was it was very cool. It was very. It was a. Th- 3d game but all with just like vector graphics and stuff and you just there were different um they're almost like different shaped circles or different shaped passages and tempest in this game the object is for you to kill everything coming at you on the screen and to avoid being killed you move around using a knob that turns in a full circle 360 degrees the things which come at you trying to kill you are fuse balls flippers tankers, spikers, and pulsars. Fuse balls zip up and down the lines. Tankers come up and split into flippers when shot or when they reach the top where you are. You also have spikers to kill. They draw lines or spikes at you. You must shoot these lines in order to get rid of them and keep the lanes on the screen clear. After you've gotten this final attacker and you've killed everything else, You'll fly down the screen using a clear lane, and you'll go on to the next screen. It was, it was cool. It was a great game. And like I said, it had great sound effects. Just one of those video games that reminds you how different video games were when they first started. And how much, like, if you had a time machine that you could bring somebody from 1984 to, like, 2016 to see the video games now, just, like, explode their heads like scanners, you know? But that's cool that it's an actual game, because I, I thought it was just, you know, like, uh, a make-believe game just for the movie, so that's uh, that's nice to hear that it was true. Sure, <laughs> you're just humoring me because I'm 43 <laughs> years old. Now. I'm not. Well, anyone who makes me feel young, I'll take it. So, and shortly thereafter, we're also introduced to Samantha, who is at home and not necessarily having a good time of it. Um, she's uh, had it. What was her line? She's got a great line about I had it out with Doris for the last time again. And I love that we have this great, like, little backstory here that we don't necessarily get, you know, painfully explained to us that Doris is the evil stepmother and the father is away in, what, Honduras or whatever, fighting, um, yeah, with the Sandinistas or whatever it is. And uh, meanwhile, Doris is playing it up with the the neighbor across the way, this kind of stuff. And definitely the daughters are not too happy having Doris there as as that evil stepmother character. And Samantha is uh, the more vocal of the two. I think Reg is to the age where she can kind of get away with a little bit more. She's got the job and everything, whereas Samantha's more homebound and she's still going to cheerleader practice in that awesome cheerleading outfit. Yeah, no, they, they. I think they established that Regina's like eighteen or something, and so presumably Sam's a little younger. Um, definitely comes off that way. And I think Samantha definitely has one of the best lines of the film too, when she was telling Doris that you were born with an asshole, Doris. You don't need Chuck. There's a weird moment though. Like it's one of the interesting things about the movie is that so she says that, and Doris slaps her, and 
she slaps Doris back, which is like a, you know, fuck yeah moment, you know? And then Doris, like, lays her out. It's unexpected and kind of upsetting, and uh, it's just kind of weird, genuine moment in a otherwise lighthearted movie. It's just very, it's an interesting thing to happen there. It doesn't make you feel like, like Doris is like a real loss when the comic comes, you know? If that were to happen in a movie today, the whole thing would focus on that slap. It would be like that stupid TV show, The Slap. When adults talk to you, you listen to what they're saying, yeah? Why are you swinging the bat at Rocco like that? What the hell is the matter with you? You hear our son? You hear my child? My is out of control! Everything would revolve around that and, you know, you wait till my dad gets home kind of thing. And, you know, it would be this huge moment of gravitas and domestic violence and all this stuff. And instead, in 1984, who gives a shit? And she goes and sleeps in the fucking uh, tool shed or whatever. So she manages to survive the apocalypse while Doris gets turned into a big pile of dust. That's a chuck. Fitting, very fitting yeah. for her end. Nothing in the film really is painfully explained it. everything just leaves it imagining that the person is going to follow along and understand you know it's sort of giving the audience credit for having a brain you know, that they don't need everything spelled out for them yeah i think there's only like one moment of catch-up in the film like where we kind of get some things explained what has happened what's going on those kind of things but for the most part yeah we are just free to explore this world with these characters and it's really nice it's very refreshing that we're not being hit over the head with here's everything that you need to know and you know we don't get this kind of like both of our characters are new to this you know like once the comic comes we are finding out like the rules, as it were, quote unquote, with them. So we don't have anybody who's like, well, here, let me tell you exactly what happened and why this is going on. And they figure it out themselves and we get to go along with that. So it's not like, you know, oh, uh, here's you know Basil Exposition coming along. Like when Hector shows up, he doesn't know anything more about this world than they do. Right. And they're all lost. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, and also, like, I wouldn't go so far to say that gender roles are reversed, but it's definitely, like, like Hector is definitely, you know, he's the love interest that they kind of squabble over. I wouldn't say he's necessarily a feminized man or whatever, but it's just interesting because any other movie, let alone Hector, like, would have made the projectionist the hero, you know, because he's kind of the geeky movie guy, especially in that era. And it's just really cool that instead it's the two teenage girls. And also, I just got to give a shout out to Michael Bowen, the guy that plays the projectionist because like he's a guy that <laughs> he plays like a dick in like every movie that he's in and he's so good at it like tarantino he's used him a couple times he was on lost he was in magnolia he played the dickhead dad like he's just always and he just really nails that character <laughs> he's one of those guys that you like you almost like he's got to be a decent guy in real life because he's just always stuck playing like <laughs> real scumbags on film yeah it's funny that you say that there is this love triangle for a little bit here between Hector and the two sisters. And yeah, thinking about like other end of the world films, like even like the world, the flesh and the devil, or we'll talk a little bit more about the quiet earth or some of these other films. And it's almost always last man, last woman. And then another guy shows up and then now here we start the tension. And with this, 
having the one guy and the two girls. And I like that tension as well, because it's just this whole thing of like, I, all my boyfriends get taken away from me, or you're the, you know, you're the better sister, all these kind of things. And it really helps build the characters more than anything, because now we get to le- learn a little bit more about Sam and Reg because of Hector showing up. And Hector's a great character too, which I really appreciate. Like, Robert Beltran is fantastic in this, and he's yeah. just coming off of uh, Eating Raul, where he played such a different character. Played this total like cholo shithead kind of guy, like real seedy and everything. And in this, he's like boy next door. He's the guy that you want your daughter to go out with. Joe Bob Briggs said he was a Shakespearean actor when he started out. I just find that really interesting. Oh you wow. Don't get it. Like, it's a very, like, naturalistic performance here. You know, like, he feels like a guy you could meet definitely in L.A. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. It's a very low-key, kind of likable. He does exactly what he's, what he's meant to do. It's a, it's a fun dynamic. He's a, for lack of a better term, a person of color. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes sense. He's in L.A., you know, and he's uh, of, of Latino descent. But it's great that they don't have an issue with that. That's not like one of these, like, oh, my God, you know. It's not like, Crash. <laughs> right. Yeah, stop the movie. Right. <laughs> and he just plays it so naturally. And it's not like the there are stereotypes that are being attached to him either, which is great. Like when he goes to his uh, his grandmother's house, just a normal house. It's not like, you know, you walk in and there's like the freaking, uh, you know, da 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 music playing or anything. So it's just normal guy, normal house. Yeah. And then he's got problems of, you know, freaking kid zombies coming to, to the door. <laughs> so, that's very Dawn of the Dead right there. <laughs> well, it's great that none of the characters are, you know, really treading to caricature territory. You know, you have Reg who obviously... Uh, isn't a virgin yet she's not a whore you know she's picking and choosing what she wants when she wants with her rules and you know samantha is this perky cheerleader but you know she can handle an uzi so i i I loved how um even with hector you know he like you said you know it wasn't um a, a typecast lines or background and and that played really well with it because I think in so many, especially the end of the world movies, you know, in order to further plot point points along, it sort of hops from you know one caricature to the next, and it, it didn't do that here. Yeah, Samantha as a cheerleader does not fit any of the typical cheerleader expectations. You know, none of the stereotypes when it comes to a cheerleader. She's acerbic. She's witty. She, yeah, like you said, she knows how to handle an Uzi. So she doesn't seem like the, you know, ditzy cheerleader or the, you know, academic who's trying too hard or any of those things. She just seems like a nice, normal person and somebody, again, that you would like to spend some time with after the end of the world. She has a great way, a great presence to her. Yeah, it's like, it's probably not surprising. It's probably you know, pretty obvious in retrospect, but uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was definitely uh, influenced by this movie. I kind of, I, like, I had an inkling. I was like, I saw this after, obviously, however many seasons of Buffy I saw, and I'm like, man, they must have, they must have seen this movie first. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I went back and found an interview with Joss Whedon where he's like, yeah, you know, the, the fact that she's a cheerleader 
you know, um, and uh, it, it's pretty, <laughs> it's right there, but I mean, it's great. It's like, it's a thing where like the girl, the girl gets to be a hero and that's just it. She's still a girl, you know, she still uh, talks about boys with her sister or whatever and uh, they can fire guns and it's not like, you know, it's not a big statement. It's just, it is what it is, you know, it's really nice. Well, that is spot on. I wouldn't have thought about the Buffy thing, but wow, there it is. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, once I was like, well, yeah, because it's just that's the experience I had with it. Like, I saw that first, and I'm like, man, they must have. They must have seen this. I think uh, Joss Whedon did Buffy as, like, his senior film in college, which probably would have been the late 80s or whatever. So he mm-hmm. must have seen this, you know, high school or college or something. And not too big a leap after that, but... I mean, this was one of those movies that I remember this being on a ton. And I think, too, one of the things is that this is a mixed genre film, but a very successful one. You know, there are too many people where it's like, oh, my God, you mix genre lines and you're, you know, it's going to be such a failure. You can't do horror and comedy or, you know, adventure or any of those things together. And this mixes so many things together and is ultimately very successful. Yeah, I mean that that scene that scene that that Angela mentioned the mall scene, which we haven't quite gotten to yet. But the mall scene is like exactly. I mean, it's Dawn of the Dead meets Girls Just Want to Have Fun, like literally. <laughs> it's even like got the knockoff like Cindy Lauper song playing. You know, it's like it's really, and it and it fits. You know exactly. It's like that scene in Dawn of the Dead where they're running around and trying everything on, but then you know it kind of it turns into the. Actually, that's probably like the longest action scene in the movie. You know, just rewatching it, I was like, "This is this is a longer shootout than I remembered." And it's great that the danger. You know, ultimately, we find out that these guys who are protecting the mall or basically have claimed the mall as their turf, that one of them, eh, he's he's turning. You know, he's definitely getting into zombie territory, but it doesn't look like his henchmen are. And it's great that the biggest threats to our our heroines are from regular dudes. You know, it's not like the zombies are, are as big a threat as these just a-holes that hang out at the mall. They're stock boys. I think it's, it's funny that there's like this like little backstory where like the, the stock boys that work in the mall kind of like took over after everyone else died. Well, those are the ones to look out for, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I was a stock boy, but. And I love the guy who plays the the main guy, the the worst of the three, the guy who's on the microphone. He's got such a great voice and such a great presence and is just so twisted. And it just, he is gleefully evil, which I always appreciate in a bad guy. You're crazy! I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. Wait, I remember when I was a kid, that aspect just frightened the hell out of me of this person just being so irreverent and making these jokes and doing these voices and things while they're planning to kill you. You know, seeing it now, of course, it's not nearly as scary, but I remember every time I would see it, I was kind of dreading the mall because everything would come crashing down, you know, and it just seemed so inescapable to be against someone like, I guess it's the, the Joker aspect of someone who's crazy to the point that they don't care, you know. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. They had two hot chicks, and then they tried shooting them. I mean, if nothing else said they were crazy, 
You mean they, they should have asked them out on a date instead? You would have thought, you know, even though it, it never got into TNA territory, you know, in hindsight, I guess um, tying them up and having them fully clothed and everything, is that really what would have happened? I guess I'll also have to be the one that brings up the fact that uh, Kelly Maroney was in Chopping Mall two years later. So, so oh, oh, such yeah. a classic. <laughs> this wasn't such a classic. This wasn't her only... Uh, horrific encounter in the after hours life of a California shopping mall. You have to wonder, does she steer clear of them now or (laughs) (laughs) thanks to Amazon, no more shopping malls. I have to say that it took me a long time for me to realize that Mary Warnov is not necessarily evil in this film. There's a group of scientists that we haven't talked about at all who were so smart that they left the ventilation system on when they were hiding out from the comet and all the dangerous rays and all this kind of stuff. So they ended up basically killing themselves, but very, very slowly. So they get to experience the whole effects of what the comet is doing to them, you know, making them forgetful, making them uh, very itchy. (laughs) That's definitely one of the things that they're drying out. They're very thirsty. And uh, the two main people, the two main scientists are Mary Warnov and Jeffrey Lewis, who are two of my favorite actors. So to see them together in this, I was just really, really thrilled. And Jeffrey Lewis, it's just, it's hilarious to see him as, as a sign. Like the more I watch this movie, the funnier it is. Cause like, I just, you know, I'm a huge Clint Eastwood fan, Clint, huge Western fan. And just like, that's where I know Jeffrey Lewis from. And it's just like to see him like, and he's got that, that, you know, Prince Valiant hairdo, which like doesn't, you know, it's just like a completely ill fitting role for him. And it's kind of cool. Like, you know, it's like, cause as like naturalistic as, as the heroes of the movie are like, there's something kind of off about these scientists, you know, like it's like this, this kind of low rent kind of character actor guy who's, who's awesome, but he's, you know, he's, he's not the first guy you call when you're trying to cast like a scientist. It's just, it's hilarious. And, uh, and Mary Warnoff too, you know, she's, she's more famous for exploitation movies. And I don't know. I think she's actually kind of really pretty in this movie. So it kind of, that doesn't, it doesn't work as much, you know, <laughs> Normally, they kind of make her look weirder in movies, but... I think you're right. She did look better in here than... Well, softer. But the casting was brilliant with that. I mean, you know, so often, um, I think, especially 80s movies, are thrown off on for the cheese factor and everything else. But there's some true genius going at, at work here. Because, you know, on the casting decisions alone, you immediately trust Lewis so much more you know, than you do his counterpart that, um, you know, you automatically buy into him being the good guy and it really blindsides you when the plot plays out. Well, yeah, I love it that she keeps saying like, Oh, we shouldn't go see them. We shouldn't rescue them. We need to worry about us. And she is doing this whole thing where she's making herself seem very selfish and then you realize, and it, like I said, it took me a long time to realize what she's actually doing is trying to save these people and that she knows that they're doomed and that they have horrible plans for any of these people that they're going to kind of snare and start draining their blood and trying to make a serum. And she's just like, no, we're, we're past that. And I like that in the original 
version of this, she was actually going to basically put Kelly Maroney, uh, Samantha, out of her misery because she realized Samantha was affected by the comet. Though it's nice that they have those kind of lines in there about how she knows she's breaking out because when she gets stressed, she breaks out and all this kind of stuff. But so we, we have that as like, uh, is Samantha going to turn or is she not going to turn? And then have Mary Warnov as this kind of angel of mercy, who's actually protecting them. It's like, Oh, okay. It's such a nice way to turn everything on its head. I didn't really care about the scientist up until, you know, whether they lived or died, you know, they're scientists and you're sort of caught up in being a teenager with the main characters, then it's like, meh, who cares about the adults? But then when she's so selfless, you're like, no, you don't want anything to happen to her. She's the one who's willing to take the bullet, as it were, or to take the shot and, you know, really, she spills the beans to Hector as to everything that's really going on and then puts him, you know, allows him to be the hero that he hasn't necessarily been allowed to be throughout the rest of the film, not to take away anything from Sam and Rich though, because they're also kicking ass through this. And I love, you know, eventually Sam and, and Reg are, 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 well, Reg is taken by these scientists and that whole great interrogation scene of Jeffrey Lewis asking her all these medical questions. And I love that she is, again, so strong and so strong-willed in there. And when she talks about her pregnancy scare, mm-hmm. I was just like, you would never get that yeah. in a film these days. And yeah, like to your point, Angel, she, she is promiscuous uh, on her own terms and – you would never get a, a character these days where it's just like, oh, yeah, I thought I was pregnant once. That was the longest three weeks of my life. It's like, yeah, thank you for actually being a normal human being. You're, you're talking about Mary Warnoff's kind of exit from the movie and the fact that Hector is just like Santa Claus. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like, like it's absurd. But it's, I'm also just like, you know, my, my, my more uh, critical brain or whatever is thinking, you know, what's what's that about? Like he's kind of dressing like Santa Claus to kind of entertain and went over Regina, and meanwhile she's elsewhere and she's acting like a total stone badass, like standing, you know, facing off against this like scientist guy and just kind of laughing it off, you know, in a scary situation. It's, it's just an interesting, you know, reversal. Uh, Warnov's uh, scene on the sofa, the end scene that um, it is just a brilliant piece of acting. I, I mean, sometimes she hits role like moments in roles that just really make you appreciate how talented she is. Well, and speaking of Santa, that also gives us one of our best lines in the film, at least to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where we've got the, uh, the, there are two kids that we're introduced to at the scientist's place, and uh, they, they're they being uh, drugged, and they're going to have their blood drawn off of them. And I love that the, these two female scientists who can't remember if they're supposed to take, what is it, three, 30 cc's or 300 cc's from somebody? That could be bad. They'd start looking like the uh, corpse from Life Force or something with all the blood drawn out of them. And yeah, they're uh, explaining why these kids should uh, take their shot or whatever because they're going to be... <laughs> gonna go and uh see santa and how they don't believe in santa and and jeffrey lewis questioning that is so good i love what you don't believe in santa yeah i thought thought you were gonna say the part when uh when regina hears the plan she's like what are you guys doing they said if we breathe 
read this, we could go to the North Pole and see Santa Claus. That's so sick. Listening to the, I, I think it was the production designer's commentary on the, the DVD, he was talking about Christmas and that they shot it around Christmas and that it would be too hard to remove all the Christmas decorations. So they decided to set it at Christmas, but Christmas is so ingrained in this movie. It doesn't seem like it was just a throwaway kind of thing. And, you know, I love the whole idea of like, you know, the, the renewal and all this kind of stuff. And just all of these remarks about Santa just works so well in the film. It's kind of a Shane Black LA movie. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> even even Iron Man, when I yeah. <laughs> when Iron Man 3 was set at Christmas time, I was like, yep, Shane Black is definitely writing and directing this. He'll always find a way. It's like uh, Lady Feet with Tarantino, you know? It's got to it's gotta get in there somehow. <laughs> a lot of Lady Feet in this movie, too. <laughs> Actually, that's a good point I hadn't thought <laughs> Well, yeah, speaking of uh, the commentary tracks i i didn't even realize how many feet there were in this film until you're listening to kelly maroney and, and Catherine mary stewart and every time there are feet on the frame they just go feet <laughs> oh, look at, more shots of feet and and it plays well you know the 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 interview with the interview with tom eberhardt we'll, we'll hear later on he talks about the scene of uh where they had to double Kelly Maroney and they just shot her feet and it fits into the movie because he had so many feet shot already. So it just seems natural, but yeah, I didn't even pick up on that. No, the I first either, I have to say hundred times I saw it, <laughs> but I know who did playing at the new Beverly. <laughs> all this It's kind of nice talking about this whole love triangle between Hector and Reg and Samantha. And eventually it's, it doesn't take too long and there's not a huge fight about it, but pretty much it gets settled pretty quickly that Reg and uh, Hector are going to be a couple. And then we do finally get another couple as the movie goes on, but not only are they a couple, but then they eventually kind of adopt these two kids as well. So we have this great, like, nuclear family going on but i love that it's kind of at the sacrifice of the grandparents you know all the all the old generation is going away and now it's just the time for this new generation time for reg and hector and these two kids to be that new family and i also like that you know it's kind of a united colors of benetton going on here between the asian girl and then hector the latino man and then these you know the the, the other two folks are white, but it's just like, great. You know, it's such a nice picture of what the, the new family can be like. And it's, uh, it's lit like they literally start tossing a football around. It's like, this, this is your America, you know, the burden of civilization falls on it. It's kind of, yeah, it's cool. It's, it's weird. It's like, cause the postal post-apocalyptic genre is like the most hopeless genre usually, you know, and this is, I, I can't think of too many that end on as hopeful a note as this one. You feel like these folks are going to do okay now. It's ironic that he's throwing, you know, Hector is offing all these guns you know, into the trash. And it's like, well, they wouldn't have survived without the guns. Though. So should anything else happen, their kids are going to be totally unprepared to continue the human race, you know. I'm also thinking about stuff like like this is what happens when you watch a movie more than once. Like the whole bit about don't cross against the light, and I'm like, well, how, where are the lights coming from? Like who's who's, yeah, running, who's running the traffic lights? <laughs> you know, but that, you know that's that's not stuff I'm supposed to be noticing. I don't think. 
<laughs> I think that made me hopeful because if anything happens on a large scale like that, I, I hope that the electricity just keeps going because I, I don't want to worry about that. Well, that was like 10 chapters of the stand was trying to get that damn electricity going again. I, I don't like cleaning my house. I don't want to go house to house cleaning yeah. all of them. Getting all the, the dust out of there and everything. Turn off all Turning the Turning off all the TVs. Yes, yes. Uh, that deaf guy, Nick, he was really good at that. <laughs> Played by Rob Lowe. Oh, yeah. WTF, man. Nothing says Latino deaf guy like Rob Lowe. Andros. Oh, Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm still <laughs> scarred by the bomb, you know. As soon as you mention it, it's like, no, don't open the closet. <laughs> scarred by so much of that horrible series at least matt Furrier was good better than the paper mache hand of god oh uh, okay king. i'm stephen king wormhole <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> all right on that note let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play back three interviews you're going to hear from director tom eberhard and stars Catherine mary stewart and kelly maroney after these brief messages let me ask you a question Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10... Free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Here are just a few of the things famous people say about the After Movie Diner podcast. Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench, and when I'm not dusting the submarine, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast. You know, for the film reviews. Hello, I'm Eric Stoltz, and when I'm not taking Uncle to the pictures, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the interviews. Hello, I'm Lewis Gossett Jr., and when I'm not trampolining for peace, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the music. Hello, Bernie Torpin here, and when I'm not undermining Venezuela. I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the guests. Hello, I'm Celia Imri Stump Double, and when I'm not wanking for tumours, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the comedy. Hi there, I'm Ali Sheedy, and when I'm not taking photographs of bricks, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast, mostly for the pancakes. Yes, that's right. The award-winning After Movie Diner podcast is all things to all people. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, and at www.aftermoviediner.com.
This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Night of Combat was a little weird in that uh, we were shooting and uh, over the holidays in 83, it would have had to have been. And then we finished the picture shortly after we finished it in February or something like that in 84. And then um, Atlantic sat on the release for a long time because they were afraid of um, the uh, 84 Olympics. They were afraid that everybody would be going to the Olympics or watching it. Nobody would go to the movies. And they were a small company, and, and this was Night of the Comet, their first nationwide release. Uh, they had done Valley Girl. Before that was their was their big hit. It kind of put them on the map. But even Valley Girl was a regional release. It was, never was a national release. And so Night of the Comet was going to be a, a big deal for them because they were a small company and uh, releasing themselves, not giving it somebody else to release. So they got all nervous about the Olympics and decided to hold off on its release. So it didn't get released until a full year after, if I'm recalling correctly, full year after uh, we were in production. It got released over, it got released, I remember it got released the weekend before Thanksgiving weekend. What happened was they released it and kids went to see it and they had about a week to go back to school and talk about it. And then they got that four day holiday off. And that's when the movie really made all its money was that weekend. And then after that, it got kicked out of most theaters because most theaters were, uh, we were, we were space holders for 2010. And, uh, we were in some fairly, fairly big theaters like the Cinerama Dome, for God's sake, in L.A. And it was because whatever movie was ahead of us that had been in that theater ahead of us, they um, it had played out and they were everybody was waiting for 2010. And so they so they ran uh, in a lot of those bigger theaters that it was in. It, it was they ran Night of the Comet in just to hold the hold the place for 2010. And then 2010 was released. And then they wish they had Night of the Comet back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that one doing too well. No, no, it, it didn't do too well. It was a, I like the picture, actually. It's a little, it's, it's, it's sorely dated now because it was all involved in, oh, we might be getting into another Cold War with Russia. I don't know. But it was all dated. Uh, it was uh, all about Cold War. The Cold War with Russia and... <laughs> And like that, but I watch it every once in a while. We have it here in a rather huge, embarrassingly huge movie collection here. 
every once in a while I'll pull it out and and watch it. But yeah, that's when Night of the Comet came out. It it came out and and, and but I as, gosh, I have this real problem with digression. Uh, we're talking about Quiet Earth. So while I was sitting around twiddling my thumbs, waiting for Night of the Comet to get released, Quiet Earth, I think, hit theaters. And I thought, oh, crap. And then I went to see Quiet Earth, and um, and I thought, well, you know, it's, it, was a, it was an okay movie, but they didn't do what we did. They, As I recall, they stayed out of the city. They, they were in the countryside most of the time, as I recall. And uh, that's why I was always proudest about it. Night of the Comet is we were we were in the city, and uh, for all for all of its low budgetness, we were able to pull off that city stuff pretty well. Yeah, how did you manage to make L.A. look so barren? Well, you know, it was just a lot of student filmmaker tricks. Was all it was. Was we, of course, we didn't have any budget for any process work or anything like that. And I had never anticipated being able to do that. I always thought we would have a whoever stepped up, if anybody ever did, to make the movie. That um, I thought this is going to have to be done for like a million, maybe a million five, no more than that. And uh, we finally did it when Atlantic stepped up to it. And I was so thrilled I didn't even bother to ask about the budget. <laughs> we were in we were in pre-production for I guess about a week or so when uh, they came and dropped the word on me that we were going to be doing it for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of misreporting about that budget. I um, I think Kelly Maroney maybe runs a website uh, on Night of the Comet and. Um, Every once in a while, I hear from her, and she'll send me a link to something, and I'll look at it. And gosh, people have been reporting the budget is like five million, ten million, things like that. Yeah, it was like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. And I remember because it's like one of those moments, like when something big and terrible happens in your life, and adrenaline courses through your system to make you always remember it. Going back to you know, primal times when you're being chased through the jungle by lions and tigers, and you always remember not to mess with lions and tigers anymore. And I always remember that budget, $750,000. Now, the thing about these low-budget productions, uh, these shoestring things, and like that, and the financing of these shoestring things, you never know. I mean, because people were, you know, there's like one budget for actually making the movie and another budget for like reporting to investors and another budget for like reporting to the IRS and like that. So you never know there's on, on almost any movie, there's going to be several different numbers flying around. But uh, what we had to make the movie was 750 K. And I remember, and that was more than Valley girl, Valley girl, as I recall, was about 300,000. And I think Halloween was in that budget range too. I think Halloween, uh, Valley Girl budget. I think Halloween was like three, three fifty, something like that. But it was shot. It was shot in a neighborhood. You know, <laughs> we were out in the big city. You know, so yeah, we. Uh, it was um, just a lot of um, cheesy tricks that you know anybody who had gone through film school back in those days uh, knew how to do, or knew somebody who knew how to do it, and. It was just a question, and also the uh, topography of L.A. L.A. sits down in a bowl. It's uh, the whole city is is 
sits down and is and surrounded by hills on all sides. And uh, so, you know, we would just do things like there was that long sequence out in front of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. You know, it was a four-lane road, looked like a really seriously big road, but there's very little traffic on it. And because we were such a low-budget production, I think we had two location cops. So they stood behind the camera and held traffic back behind the camera. And then we had some production assistant down at the bottom of the hill with a walkie-talkie. And they would tell us when the light had turned red. And <laughs> we would start shooting. And, you know, and the camera would look straight across. So all of the traffic of L.A. was actually down out of the view of the camera because it swooped down. You know, the, it was down a, down a hill. So you just looked out, you erased the soundtrack and like that. But there are the, uh, the famous zombie window washers that uh, have become over the years kind of legendary. Uh, there's one scene, if you look in the background, you can clearly see window washers. <laughs> working on a building in the background. Yeah. But no, I thought, you know, for a movie, I mean, we had, God, we had a great crew. Our, our crew, a lot of our crew had come off of Repo Man, which had shot down in LA, maybe about three or four months ahead of us, something like that. And we had uh, most of their crew. Those guys knew the drill. They were used to doing these low budget things and not blowing them off. You know, they were used to doing them and thinking they were going to be great. And so the crew, you know, they were they were never surprised by anything. We would show up and, you know, how are you going to do this? And, well, let's do it this way. And, you know, some scatterbrained idea, and they they go right to it. They said, yeah, sure, that sounds fine. Yeah. And I never, I never had a crew like that since, I must say. How did you get into filmmaking in the first place? I sort of uh, backed into it. I didn't come from a family who had any sort of background in this, My my uh, my father, my father's father, and for all I know, maybe his father, uh, they were all plumbers, and I was supposed to be a plumber too. And my mom was an assembly line worker, and uh, nobody in uh, my family had any any frame of reference for this stuff. And I didn't know a lot when I was a kid, but I knew I didn't want to be a plumber. I got involved in drama. I think when I was in high school, it's probably the thing that kept me from dropping out of high school. I'm pretty sure I would have dropped out. I was, I was always a fairly lackluster student and um, had very little interest in anything. And then I discovered drama, and it was sort of the glue that kept me stuck uh, uh, to high school. And then I proceeded on ahead with that in college, but was smart enough to, um, to figure out that I was never going to make a living as an actor. Nor did I particularly want to, uh, but I just uh, I just knew I accepted that much from my parents that I would starve to death if I ever tried that. So um, I like photography and and uh, I like gadgets, like in those days cameras and stuff. So I sort of took a couple of very rudimentary student filmmaking classes. This was at Steven Spielberg's alma mater, Long Beach State college back when it used to be before it was California State College at Long Beach and now I think it's actually a university or something but in those days it was uh, um, a state college and they had a couple of small little uh, student uh, film program 
classes and I took a couple of those and it sort of blended what I had picked up from drama. And uh, then the process I really liked was more than anything else is film editing. Um, Because as a kid, I was always building model airplanes and stuff. And it was a lot like building model airplanes. And so it sort of became this gestalt, <laughs> you know, like 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 the whole is more than the sum of the parts. It, and uh, and I was very very lucky. Uh, I have to say, it sounds as corny as it sounds, being in the right place at the right time. Um, I did a couple of small student films actually with uh, uh, Stephen. In those days, they called him Steve, Steve Zillard. and um, he stopped going to college probably about six months before I stopped going to college. I never graduated, neither did he. And um, I just, I worked for a while at the country Western radio station and went out and took my, whatever I had at that point, super eight camera out and shot stuff and put people I knew who were acting students in things and like that. And then I was lucky enough to, land a job working for uh, a PBS affiliate and did a lot of documentary work, about 10 years worth. And then um, decided that what I really wanted to do was to direct features. And so during PBS days, I started off as an editor and uh, I backed into directing because I was being given such crap to cut. And I backed into writing because I was being given such crap to direct and um, had no designs ever on uh, writing. It just turned out that that was what I actually made my living doing was writing. I mean, I directed some things. I probably direct, I don't know, maybe five or six or so features, something like that. And uh, a few um, long form television things, but mostly it was writing. And uh, I hate writing, and I always have. And but I just finished. You know what? I just finished a script that I I had foot surgery, and I was going to be off my feet for about three months and twiddling my thumbs. And I hadn't written a script in about six years. I had had an idea for years and years, and decided, well, this will be fun. I'll just knock this thing out and give it to my agent. She really hadn't liked anything I'd written for about ten years, and so, and so, but I'll give it to her. And you know what it is? It's an absolute throwback to Night of the Comet. The the script's called Hollow Point Angels. Night of the Comet was about valley girls with machine guns, and and uh, this is about Catholic schoolgirls with machine guns. And uh, not at the end of the world, their their Catholic school is in a barrio and uh, it's kind of been decimated by the drug trade and there's drug lords in the neighborhood and like that. And one of their best friends gets killed. And so they decided to arm themselves, learn how to use their weapons and take on the local drug lords. And it's just, it's just a big shoot em up with Catholic school girls, you know, in pleated skirts and knee socks with, you know, MAC-10s. And, and um, I, I just, you know, I wrote it because I just, you know, uh, it was just tickled my funny bone. And I, and I sat down, it took me about three or four weeks to write the thing. And then I was off to Europe and I decided, well, I'll send it to my agent. She'll just, you know, yawn and, and say next. But, uh, I got back and she flipped for it. Now it's in the hands of uh, 
of a producer whose name I've been pledged not to reveal, not to reveal. But um, it looks like, you know, they're serious about making it. I don't know if they will or not. You never know. But uh, golly, if they do, what a way to cap off a career. <laughs> I'll be right back where I started. I told a friend of mine, I should have stuck with what worked. Because if I had, I'd be living in Bel Air right now. How did uh, Soul Survivor come about? How was that kind of uh, going from what I imagine was PBS into directing features and writing features? Yeah, that was uh, that was one of those um, uh, lucky turns in the road. The picture didn't. The picture was a real Ed Wood adventure. That movie. We. It should have been a much better movie, but there were extenuating circumstances and. Um, uh, the guy who was financing the movie uh, made office furniture. And uh, I mean, he didn't hand make it. He had a big company that made office furniture. And uh, he had a wife who was taking acting lessons. Her acting teacher just told her she was really swell. So he was looking for something for her to be in. So I wrote her a part in the script that I was sitting on first actually the first feature i wrote and it turned out to be this this big ed wood thing we <laughs> you know it's like plan nine from outer space it uh i i rarely talk about it but i will for you uh we did such thing i'll tell you uh another person who'd like to forget it my dp was russ carpenter who won an academy award for titanic um russ and i had worked together at pbs for uh, for quite a while, and I asked him if he'd help me shoot this thing, and he said, sure. And the night he won an Academy Award, I sent him this picture I had of him. We, you know, we didn't have any money for equipment. We had no money for anything. And he had this, we put a motorcycle helm. I had this, I had to do these driving shots at night with Anita Skinner, who was the actress who was playing the lead. And uh, she wasn't the furniture guy's wife that was another character in the movie but uh she she had to drive around so we had russ we put a motorcycle helmet on russ and then we literally we put the camera of uh, an airy bl 35 bl we had it sitting on a block of foam rubber russ was laying on the hood of this car and we gaffer taped it to the, to the car so he wouldn't fall off and <laughs> and anita was behind the wheel so here was this movie actress driving through these darkened streets in the middle of the night with Russ and Russ in the camera, and that was it. And she off she went and turned the corner, and we sort of held our breath for about 10 minutes before they rounded the other corner and came back. And we were so happy that he was still alive and still glued to the hood of the car. And uh, we had, let's see, we got into an emergency room at a hospital or a uh, into a hospital to shoot. And we did that by having the crew donate blood. I, uh, I, I had used, I'd used this hospital before in, in some things I'd done for, uh, for PBS for educational television. And so I kind of made, you know, I kind of told little white, I didn't tell any lies. I just sort of avoided the truth. And, uh, and so I said, so I need to shoot in the hospital again. When can I do that? And they only knew me from PBS. They didn't know me from anywhere else. And they said, well, we kind of have this policy now. We can't just give stuff away. You know, there has to be something in it for the hospital. 
And I said, oh, you're having a blood drive. What about if my crew donates blood? Every single one of them. And uh, they said, well, that was, so they did this little press release about how this TV, they thought it was TV at the time, crew was coming in. And so I lined my crew up, including Russ, to give blood. And it turned out that I had had hepatitis and I couldn't give blood. So I was the first one in line. So I said, just pretend like a table. I can't have these guys see that I'm getting off. So I mean, it wasn't that many of us, only about six of us. So we all sat down and we all had orange juice and cookies before we started shooting so we wouldn't faint. <laughs> With Night of the Comet, what was kind of your inspiration for that one? Oh, yeah, that's got a good solid inspiration. When I was a kid, I grew up in the late 50s. Uh, I was in high school by 62 or 63. But when I was growing up through the late 50s, every weekend we'd go to the movies. It didn't really matter. We'd just go. And in those days, there was usually a monster movie or something playing somewhere. And um, I saw, I wasn't old enough to have seen it the first time in the theaters because I think it came out in 54. But I saw it in a rerun at a theater, a bar, some sort of bargain matinee during the summer. And they reran the movie, and it was a movie called Target Earth. And Target Earth, uh, there's two movies, I think. One's about UFOs or something. But Target Earth, the one that I saw when I was maybe about 9, 10, um, it was with Richard Denning, and I can't remember the rest of the cast, bless their hearts, Virginia Gray, maybe. Um, but anyway, it... It has, if any of your listeners on your podcast want to see outstanding, minimalist movie making, they just should get a hold of Target Earth. And I think it's out, it's out on, uh, it was out on LaserDisc years back, so I guess it's out on uh, DVD maybe. But Target Earth, the first 10 minutes of Target, they don't have to watch the whole movie, just the first 10 minutes. It is... It is outstanding filmmaking with nothing but what I'm sure was a 35 millimeter IMO camera and um, all the same tricks that are in that movie, except I think they shot early in the morning on a Sunday morning on that movie. We shot primarily during business days when we did Night of the Comet. Mm -hmm. But that movie scared the bejesus out of me. And the reason it did was because of that first 10 minute setup was so haunting you know just a, a totally empty city and i never forgot it and there were um a lot of movies that um were made about that time in fact the pilot episode of the twilight zone uh w well it wasn't so much an empty city as it was an empty backlot town but it was about a guy waking up and everybody was gone uh, and he didn't know why. And there, Arch Obler about that time did a movie called Five. Uh, same deal. And uh, Harry Belafonte. Now, also, if your listeners want to see a, a wacko, empty city social commentary movie, Harry Belafonte produced, and how in the world he ever got it made, I don't know, uh, produced a movie called World, the Flesh, and the Devil with he, Harry Belafonte, and supposedly the other only other person left alive in New York was Inger Stevens. So you had Inger Stevens, very, very, very blonde, and Harry Belafonte, uh, sort of black. And um, they were the only two people left in New York City. So it became this kind of social 
um, commentary movie, but that had excellent stuff in it. That had, because it was actually an MGM movie, I think. And they actually uh, did stuff like they built sidewalks above the level of the real sidewalks in New York so they could shoot and have the buildings in the background and everything, but not have to worry about pedestrian traffic. And, uh, and I think in those days they had like uh, uh, air raid drills. I think they had one in New York where they completely evacuated the streets of New York in the early 50s. They had stock footage from that. Anyway, an excellent picture, not a zombie movie or anything, but mostly social commentary and, and, and a bit dated, uh, but still... Um, I thought it was just um, uh, just the bee's knees when I saw it. I thought, gosh, what a great setup. And uh, so I just remember that. And after Soul Survivor, which uh, almost put me off of movie making altogether <laughs> by the time we were through with it. Uh, after that, I said, OK, I'm not going to do anything. No more furniture manufacturers and <clears throat> their friends and like that. I'm just going to do a movie that I like, that I would like to see, that had people in it that I like, and it's about something I'm interested in. And uh, so I just reverted to those days of uh, Empty City movies in the late 50s. I think actually a couple of locations that are in uh, Target Earth or uh, in Night of the Comet too, a couple of, of angles on the Empty City streets. is all shot around the downtown public library uh, in LA. But anyway, that was the inspiration for the whole thing. And I'd been working while I was at PBS, I'd been working, I'd been doing these after-school special kinds of things. After I got out of documentaries, I started honing my skills doing after-school specials and stuff. And I was working with these two, I don't know, maybe they were 13-year-old girls, maybe in this this short-lived, these were like 40-minute things. And uh, we had a break for lunch and I was sitting with him and I was talking and I just said, what would you do if you woke up one morning and everybody was just gone, gone, and it was just you two. And that's all it was. And that's all it took. Their imagination just fired off and they wouldn't stop talking. And it was all about the things that they would do and what, you know, cars they could drive, you know, like the 13 or something, and all about the cars they could drive and and uh, the clothes they could get and all the stores they could get into. And I said, I said, well, what if there were bad guys around? At that point, I hadn't even decided on, you know, walking dead people. Um, and I said, what if there were bad guys around? And they said, well, we just get guns and shoot them. You know, there's lots of gun stores around. We just get guns. We could get a whole arsenal, guns and bullets and everything and just, you know, duke it out. And <clears throat> excuse me, I, uh, I was just impressed that there, without my prompting, there was just absolutely no lament <laughs> for dead friends, dead parents, dead anybody. It was just all about, it was all about them. And I thought, you know, this is like so clean. And I, you know, I prompted them about, well, what if you had a boyfriend? Oh yeah, well, that would be kind of sad, of course. And that led to Kelly Maroney's uh, soliloquy sitting on the hood of the car um, in that one scene. But, you know, that's just, all, that's just all it was. It was just a romp, a romp. And I had, um, it was just about these two girls, the wacko idea that 
first of all, that they were perfectly competent and capable of handling danger and they didn't need to be rescued. They weren't waiting around tied to the railroad tracks, screaming for the police to get there or something like that. They were never in any danger. The, um, except that the, the, one of the things about my comet, uh, uh, Kelly, if you ever talk to Kelly, Kelly's big on telling people this. Kelly's character actually in the original draft died. She was actually killed. The Mary Warnoff character actually knew that she'd been affected by whatever this was supposed to be, comet dust or whatever it was. And she knew that she was infected, so she was going to be zombied out. And uh, so rather than have her go through that zombie torture, she injected her and killed her, euthanized her. My wife hated that scene and was on me to change it. And then when we actually were into production, my producers, uh, Wayne and Andy, uh, Wayne Crawford, Dandy Lane, they didn't like it. They said, this is a bad move. And my wife is already like, when we actually figured we were going to make the movie, she was on me and on me and on me to change that. Can't kill her off, can't kill her off. And then the crew <laughs> say, can't kill her off, can't kill her off. So I quickly made some changes and gave Robert Beltran a, like a quick three-sentence explanation about why she seemed to be dead, but now she wasn't anymore. And we went ahead and shot that. The thing was, we didn't let, we never let logic get in our way on that show. And when they went to promote the show, um, there was nothing around like it. Uh, there had been, um, I think, gee, there had been some uh, um, horror movies by that time that had comic relief bits in them, you know, where there would be where there would be a scene where something funny happened, but it was just like classic comic relief. There hadn't been one of these, unless my mind is failing me, there hadn't been one of these where it was actually playing on two, two levels at the same time. It was a parody on one level, and it was just playing along on a parallel track with the actual straight-up adventure of the thing. And I call it an adventure, not a horror story or a sci-fi story. There was very little science involved. And uh, there was very little horror. There were some good little, you know, moments, little, little screen moments. But it really wasn't about that. It was, it was really an adventure was what it was with these two girls. And when they went to promote the movie, they, the people that they hired to do the promotion didn't know how to handle the movie. Because, first of all, nobody except the people at the top at Atlantic Releasing, nobody thought, that this everybody knew it was a good movie, but nobody knew it was, you know, they thought it would just come and go because they thought the audience wouldn't accept it. And the people that were handling promotion didn't believe in it because they told me straight up. They said, listen, you know, these girls, you know, they're just these kick-ass girls. And, um, you know, if this is basically a drive-in movie, date night movie and you know guys just aren't going to be interested in going to see this with girls when the girls are beating up every guy in sight and i said and i said you know i think you're wrong and uh you know i told them i think that girls will want to be these girls and guys will want to date these girls 
And I said, I think that's the story of this movie. I think this movie is sexy, but it's not sexy and a kind of in-your-face sexiness. It has the sexiness of girls who are competent, but still want to be girls. You know, they're competent. They can, they can kick ass when they have to. They can blow somebody away without blinking an eye, but they're still girls, you know, and they still have the whole girly thing happening with them. And uh, it turned out that um, it worked pretty darn well. Um, the movie made, gosh, my memory serves me correctly. What was reported in Variety was like, I think, 25 or $30 million, basically over the course, course of two weekends, because uh, we, were, we were out of theaters. We were in second-run theaters by the third weekend, I think. Um, we just we weren't in theaters very long because because Atlantic was a very small company and they didn't have the clout to hold the theaters. So it made money. People went to see it. And then it's turned out surprisingly to be this. I mean, it really, I, I say this in all sincerity. I am shocked <laughs> that people still remember that movie uh, because I thought it was uh, I thought it was a piece of fluff when we were doing it. And I thought it would play as a piece of fluff. And it did. And I thought that, you know. It would be, you know, passed from memory and um, except for, you know, total film nerds. But no, what was it like, like maybe six or seven years ago, eight years ago? It opened the L.A. Uh, the L.A. Film Festival, the L.A. Film Expo or Film Market or whatever they call it there. It was on a double bill with another apocalyptic movie, uh, Miracle Mile. Yeah, that would be a good feature. Yeah, it opened it opened that uh, it opened the film festival, and I was surprised to hear that because you know the L.A. Film Festival was a big deal, and it was opening night, double feature, night of the time because they both were L.A. and L.A. getting destroyed or wiped out or something, and so that's why they did it. Some clever programmer, but gosh, you know, there's been continual talk about remaking it. And um, uh, I mean, for a long time, going back like eight or nine years, uh, there's been talk about this, that. And for a while, Paramount was on the case and they wanted to do it. MGM, I think, owns the, the rights to it now. And um, but for a long time, I was telling people that I didn't see how it could be remade because it was a movie of its time. And Kelly and Kathy were both like 24 and they were playing 16 and 17 year olds in the movie, but their sensibilities, if you were to redo that movie today and try to capture that same sensibility, you'd be looking at girls that were like 12 or 13 at this point, you know, it was just a different time. And uh, certainly kids weren't as uh, sophisticated or forced to be as sophisticated as they are now. And I just didn't see how it was possible. But then I saw Zombieland. And I said, yeah, this would be it. You know, this would be it. Because the, I forget the actresses in Zombieland, but I've, their names, but I'm saying that, that's it. They could play those girls in Night of the Comet today. It would be them today. I was always wondering if you uh, were a big uh, Day of the Triffids fan. I uh, really liked Day of the Triffids. I wasn't, when I was a kid, I wasn't a big fan of all those hammer horror films, all that stuff coming out of, uh, out of the UK, like, um, X, the unknown and 
and all of that kind of stuff. I always felt kind of gypped by those movies because it seemed to be a lot of um, a lot of talk and not much monster. I loved funkiness in production. Even when I was a kid, I loved all that funkiness. But it was even a little too funky for me. I think in X the Unknown, I think Dean Jagger is the American star they brought in to play the lead to make Americans think it was an American movie. But right. he was conducting an experiment with a thing that actually was a complete erector set. It was built out of an erector set. You could tell just by looking at it. I mean, when I was a kid, I had an erector set. And I, you know, it, you know, and, and that kind of stuff was even a little too cheesy for Roger Corman. But I have to say the Day of the Triffids um, was, I, I mean, I've seen it a couple of times, maybe in the last 20 years. There's there's not a good print of it around, I think, in this country. I think it may be in public domain in the U.S. It's pretty clunky when you look at it now. But um, I remember really liking it, and it might have been because it was that end-of-the-world thing. In fact, 28 Days Later starts off much like Day of the Triffids, don't you think? It starts off with a guy... The guy in the hospital and he wakes up and, you know, takes the bandages off his eyes and nobody's around. Yeah, Day of the Triffids. And my wife is, is, uh, this is why we've been married since dinosaurs ruled the earth, because uh, we're, we're very compatible in our taste for cheesy movies. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, Day of the Triffids is, uh, is on our list. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, The Night Before and how that one came about? Oh, yeah, The Night Before. Hmm. That was a wake-up call for me because I had had such a good experience doing uh, Night of the Comet, and Night of the Comet came out well, and it, then it went off and it did made money. And I thought, okay, I understand now. This is the way it works. You know, I write a good script, and then uh, somebody coughs up some money. We go off and make it. We do a good job making it. It goes into theaters. It makes money. And uh, on to the next one. And I just thought that was the way it was. And uh, Night Before was sort of a wake-up call. Was, the original script was written by a guy named Greg Sherrick. And uh, it was a pretty good idea. I think Greg was a new writer. It was his first script. Not that I was a seasoned writer, because I'd only written two up to that point. And so I took Greg's script, and I... I rewrote it, and um, a good story, amnesia story, you know. For those who don't know what it's about, it's basically about this kid. He wakes up in an alley in the, quote, wrong part of town, unquote, and in, a, in this alley, and he's dressed in a, in a dinner jacket and slacks, and he's got a pink carnation, and he doesn't know what's happened, how he's gotten there, what's going on. And in a way, it's a kind of empty city movie in and of itself. And he, as he slowly starts to remember through a series of flashbacks um, what had happened to him. And it's a comedy, fish out of water, consummate fish out of water comedy. And uh, anyway, uh, there was a company called King's Road Productions. They were in Century City in L.A. And... Um, they were looking to get into the low-cost teen movie uh, production racket. And they they were involved at some point with um, Adventures in Babysitting, which 
Disney uh, Touchstone did, uh, ultimately. Um, and they had this other script, and I had just done Night of the Comet and delivered this movie for a ridiculously small amount of money. And they said, well, let's bring him in. <clears throat> sure. And uh, he's... Uh, He's a director, but he's also a writer director, so we can pay him for direct and to direct, and he'll write for free, of course. <laughs> Two for one, <laughs> which is exactly what happened. And um, we got into casting, and we cast uh, this kid who grew up to be Keanu Reeves, and Keanu just came in and uh, uh, shuffled into the room wearing. In those days, I think he was like would come in wearing a skirt. Maybe he was like over the top, defiant of uh, <laughs> of societal norms. He came in and he read for us, and he had this hysterical kind of laugh and like that. Except there was something about him that seemed sort of you know something going on beyond Bill and Ted, which I think he shot Bill and Ted just before he shot, or maybe shot it right after. I don't know. He did. He had done a movie called River's Edge, and which was totally opposite of that, uh, Bill and Ted stuff. Uh, it did Bill and Ted right around that time. A and anyway... I seem to remember Bill and Ted took a while to come out, too. It was shelved for a while. Yeah, maybe that was it. I think Interscope did, did, did Bill and Ted. And yeah, because I... Anyway, he'd done some wacky stuff. He was still meandering in his career. He had done Babes in Toyland as a as a um, TV special uh, at one point, just before we got a hold of him. And you know, it was a costume thing for TV. And you know, Keanu was in tights and romping around. And his career hadn't taken off yet, and although it was about to with Bill and Ted, and we. Shot with Teresa Saldana was in it. Lori Loughlin played the girl. It was all about the he, he was on his way to the prom and he was the nerd and complete high school nerd. This was in the eighties and it was the day of the nerd and he was a high school nerd and she was the she was the high school soch and prom queen and everything else and somehow I forget what the conceit was but he ended up she lost a bet or something and had to go to the prom with him. And they were on their way to the prom and got lost, which he slowly remembers through the course of the movie. And uh, then it turns out that he accidentally got wasted on, you know, some sort of party drug, <laughs> ill-defined party drug. And he realizes he accidentally sold his prom date into prostitution. <laughs> so he's so he's got to get her back because her father is Michael Green, who had a good career back then in the eighties playing hard ass police detectives. And so he's got to get her back and get her home before her father finds out and kills him. So, um, uh, first half is all this flashback stuff. And, um, the audience didn't <laughs> react too well to it. We had some previous screenings. We thought the picture was good. The editors and I all thought the picture was actually for what it was supposed to be pretty, pretty good. And, uh, but it didn't preview well. So, you know, I said, well, it's the luck of the draw. What do preview audiences know anyway? That's what they all say. Huh? And so I was all set to, uh, to say, call it a day. But then the producer, uh, the guy whose production company was and made this thing, uh, he decided that he wanted to work on it. 
more and he worked and he worked and he worked and I finally left the picture because I couldn't take it any longer. I left the picture and I went over to England to do a movie with Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. And while I was there, they had torn the picture completely apart, reconstructed it in a linear fashion and taken away all the flashbacks and just told the story in a linear, a linear format. And that didn't help it. In fact, it made it worse. And then when we came back after I finished the, the Michael and Ben picture, I came back to ask me to come back and reconstruct the movie to the way I originally had a cut. And boy, that was like a bizarre thing because no records had been kept of the original cut and they were destroyed. And uh, we lost a lot of soundtrack through various nefarious things, sabotage, and I don't know what all had happened. So we ended up piecing the picture back together, sort of the way it was originally uh, played. But all of us by that time were sort of turned off by it. And it never did get a theatrical release. It it played in a couple of theaters just because it contractually had to. But it never did get a, a theatrical release. And then pretty much was forgotten about. But uh, then um, uh, I think Lionsgate maybe is, has it in a collection called Lost Films of the 80s or something. And somebody tipped me off to it. And so I went on the internet and was looking up lost films of the eighties and, and like that. And suddenly I was looking at all of these kind of fan reviews of it. And actually it turned out that people were kind of liking it. (laughs) So, so I, you know, I don't know that, that tended to be a thing with, with movies that I've done is, is they kind of age like wine, <laughs> you know, people, when they originally pop the cork, they don't take to it too much. But then after, you know, 10 years and long after I can make any profit out of it, they, they, they warm up to the picture and like that. But yeah, it, it all came about in the wake of night of the comet. And it was part of that thrust of teen movies that were being made, the, the Brad Pat movies and, and like I said, adventures in babysitting and, and that kind of stuff. And this company, King's Road, wanted to get into that action. So they, uh, uh, and they had this script, they had Greg Sherrick's script. And uh, I decided to jump in with both feet. It just, did, you know, at the time, it just didn't work out like we had all hoped it would. But, you know, I thought Keanu, there were times when I could have choked him while we were making the movie. But it turned out that even with that, silly little character that was in that movie. There was still a depth to that performance. And, you know, I can, I can look at that movie now, if I, you know, happen to come across it somewhere, I can look at that movie now and I can see that there was that depth to that guy that I have to confess. I didn't see at the time when we were doing the movie, but behind that crazy hysteria of his, there was, you know, you could see that third dimension of that actor. Yeah. You talked about directing uh, without a clue. That was one of the few films, or first films at least, that you directed but didn't write fully. Yeah, yeah. It was written by uh, Larry Strother and I believe Gary Murphy, and they were uh, sitcom writers. They they were right. There was a series on TV, sitcom series called Night Court, and they were writers on Night Court, and they wrote this little Sherlock Holmes parody. And I thought 
after night before, I thought my career was over. <laughs> you know, I just barely gotten started. You know, I've been strangled in its crib. But uh, um, I had a friend who was working at ITC, the company that had the script and was going to make the movie. And he sent me over the script, and the script was so wacky. I mean, it was just wacky. And uh, he said, you want to direct this? And I, <laughs> I didn't bother to say, why me? I immediately said, sure. I, I think I said, sure, before I even read the script, because I, was, I, I thought at the time I was out of the game. And I read the script, and the script was a, a good idea. And I, I did some rewriting on it a little bit just to, because we got over to England with scouting locations and <clears throat> nobody anticipated Michael Caine playing Sherlock Holmes. And certainly nobody anticipated Ben Kingsley playing Dr. Watson. And so I had these two actors suddenly, and I was looking at the location. So I started writing to the actors in the location, just nipping and tucking and tailoring the script, uh, to fit them. And, uh, I decided to, we did it almost like a carry-on movie. In fact, some of my crew, when we shot, we shot it at Pinewood, and some of my crew had, had worked on carry-on movies. And uh, we did it with all this kind of like music hall, pratfall comedy, and like that. I, we had a ball doing it. It was just a blast. And we uh, uh, and Michael had never done anything like it, and Ben had never done anything like it before or since, by the way. And uh, I think I've directed the only flat-out pratfall comedy Ben Kingsley ever did, and Michael, too, for that matter. We finished it up, and it was my first, quote, big-budget movie, unquote, although everything's relative. We, they, they spent about $12 million on it. Uh, it was great being over there uh, to do the thing. Came back, and Orion, who was the company that released it, we thought it would do well in the big cities, but not so well out in the hinterlands because we thought big cities, we thought, well, you know, you've got Monty Python people, you know, that, you know, Monty Python addicts and like that, <clears throat> they'll be into it. But it turned out that it was just the opposite. Uh, it didn't do so well in the big cities, but it did very well out in the hinterlands. And it was, and also, where I thought thought it wouldn't do at all well at all was in England. Did very well there. It was number one in Canada. I don't know for how many weeks. I did pretty well in most English speaking territories. Although because it didn't play well in the big cities here in the U.S., it didn't really do a lot of business here. I think it maybe opened in the top ten its opening weekend and then quickly slipped out of that. But we always liked the picture, you know, my partner, Mark Sturdivant, and I always liked the picture and, and we're certainly happy that we did it. And that's another one that has aged well, but at the time, <laughs> I don't know where those people are that like it so much now where they were then I could have used them. Yeah. What was that experience like for you directing something that you weren't directly involved with writing? Cause you did that with that, that, that was the case with Gross Anatomy as well. Yeah. Well, Gross Anatomy was sort of a Frankenstein together script. Uh, I have to be honest that I'm lazy as a, a director. If I'm handed a script that somebody else has written and I start looking at it, I immediately start reconstructing it. 
You know, I just do reconstruct rather than bringing myself to the script. I take the script and bring it to me, which is uh, kind of not a great way to do it, especially if you're a screenwriter and your script's been handed to Tom Eberhardt. I mean, I've, I don't go around the Writers Guild building much because, uh, you know, there's too many people out to kill me. I did work on Without a Clue. When I came to do Gross Anatomy at Disney, Gross Anatomy was a it's the kind of movie they don't make anymore. And that's the kind of movie I was making back in those days. And I was perfectly happy doing it. But they don't make those kind of movies anymore. Those movies were program movies. They were the studio had to produce a certain number of films a year to fill a pipeline, to fill a release pipeline and then a video pipeline. Um, Night of the Comet was one of the first movies to have a video release as part of its normal release pattern. It wasn't retrofitted. It it was, and it was in the top 50 selling video cassettes for almost a year, Night of the Comet. And that's when video cassettes were selling for an unbelievable $79.95 a piece. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Ron Neiswanner was the... Um, uh, they, that, that uh, Gross Anatomy had been in development at Disney for a long time, and they never knew what they wanted to do with it. You know, first it was going to be police academy in medical school. Then it was going to be officer and a gentleman in medical school. And it seemed like whatever movie was out that was a hit, they were going to take that and put it into medical school. So it had been, and Ron Neiswanner was a writer, and Ron, who won an Academy Award for Philadelphia, Ron was a crack writer, but by the time I joined the project, um, Disney had just assigned a production start date for the movie, and the script wasn't in shape because Ron had written and written and written. And as a writer, you reach a point where it's like saying toy boat over and over again. <laughs> you know, you just you lose all feel of the characters. You lose all feel of the situation. And when I when I got there, Ron, who had seen that script through soap opera, through farce comedy, through romance, uh, he had <laughs> seen it through everything, and he was at his wit's end. And um, so he and I wrote on the script together while we were in pre-production, because the movie had a start date, and we were going to be shooting, and we had no script. So no, no viable script. So we, we were writing together on it, then he got to a point where he just had was fed up with with Disney's notes and like that. And like I said, he'd been doing it and doing it and doing it. So he went back home. I think he lives in Connecticut. He went back home to Connecticut. And I was there with the script. So I continued because now I'm, you know, now I'm stuck with it. I'm going to start shooting this thing and I, you know, got to get it finished. So I was literally writing it as we were going along. And, um, Disney in those days was very hands-on, to put it politely, hands-on. And um, I, I remember I would be sitting in my uh, motorhome on the set where we were shooting. A lot of it was shot at USC. We'd be, I'd be sitting there, you know, during lunch, writing on a yellow pad scenes for the next day. And then they'd take the yellow pad and they would Xerox it and they would send it off and it would have to get approved all the way up to the top. I mean, literally to Jeffrey Katzenberg. 
and come back down with notes, you know? And the notes were like, uh, I'd written a line for Daphne Zuniga in it, and I love Daphne to death, but Daphne is an actress who always had an edge to her, and I was aware of it. So I just wrote this line for her, and notes came back from my production executives saying, um, I wanted me to put in parenthetical instructions for Daphne saying sarcastic, because the line was supposed to be sarcastic. And I said, well, Daphne understands. And by the way, I'm directing the picture, and I understand so do you think it's really necessary to put that instruction in? And by the way, I wrote it. I just wrote the scene. And they said, they said, they said, well, we feel better. So I put in parentheses sarcastic. Then because I made a change, it had to go up the chain again and come back down. And by the time it came back down, and I think it was Jeffrey had written in not too sarcastic. <laughs> so, and so we went out and we did it. I mean, that that particular scene's in the movie. You know, and Daphne did it just as I knew she was going to do it and just as I wanted her to do it when I wrote the thing, sarcastic, but not too sarcastic. That stuff, you know, aside. Yeah, that was a studio program picture. I think the budget on that was maybe about $10, $12 million. That's what they were spending on those things at the time. And they were doing a lot of them, you know. And I was perfectly happy doing it because I was doing what I liked. And in a weird sort of, some people would say masochistic way, I liked working for a studio that was overbearing. <laughs> I just liked it because they came out and they said what they thought. And there was no beating around the bush. You know, they just, they would say it to you and you would say, okay, got it. <laughs> Go out and then I would try and deliver it the best way I could. And oftentimes it worked. I've said to myself a lot of times that if I, I've never made a movie where I didn't have the pressure of schedule and budget on me. I mean, on me big time, not just kind of on me, but on me and ripping my clothes off. And, and then plus like at Disney, the, the studio demands and everything uh, that were coming down. And I, I don't know if if I would have even been able to work if I didn't have those kind of pressures. I'm just, a, you know, have always been that kind of guy. It's why I've always loved low-budget film production because because that's always trying to figure out how to get the mostest with the leastest, and it just drives your thought. And, you know, it's like putting all your creativity in a pressure cooker, you know, and, and turning on the fire, you know, and... You know, sometimes you sometimes you hit and swing and miss, but uh, sometimes there's stuff that, you know, going back to Night of the Comet, one of my favorite stories in Night of the Comet was um, there's a scene where Catherine Mary Stewart has been spirited away and now is in the clutches of these crazed scientists and these gray coveralls. <laughs> there's like six of them in this huge underground facility. And there's only six of them, but they all have to wear name tags. You know? <laughs> like, like what? <laughs> you know, they don't know each other. So they all have to wear name tags. So Catherine Mary's uh, down there and she's now in the clutches of these guys and her little sister, formerly dead in the first draft, but now alive in like the third draft. And so her little sister's coming down to get her. And uh, what happened was that was, neither comment was so low budget 
that, and this, this is why I cut my teeth on it. It's actually, like I said, being a masochist, I kind of enjoy it. When they say this is all the time you have, they mean this is all the time you have, period. And you don't say, well, you know, they say that, but I can get another hour. No, you can't. So we were, we were shooting on the sets that John Mudo had designed and built for us, a production designer. And as I was shooting, they were tearing the sets down around me because we had to get out of the soundstage because they weren't going to pay any more rent. I had to walk away with some stuff unshot. And one of the things I had unshot was the moment that Kelly Maroney, as playing the little sister, arrives in the underground facility to rescue her sister. And she's got her machine gun and everything, and she's ready to go to war. Well, we didn't, we didn't shoot that. I had to walk away from it. So I'm scratching my head. How the hell are we going to do this? How the hell are we going to do this? So what did I have left? My two actresses were both in soap operas. So they had gone back to New York. The sets were torn down. Everything was packed away. So what was I going to do? So we had we had somebody, maybe Wayne or Andy, my producers, to talk somebody, giving us a little corner of a small little insert stage to shoot on. We had a an airy BL that somebody had promoted from somewhere. We had, you know, it was like that scene in Apollo 13 where they're trying to make the the uh, air filters out of various parts and <laughs> trying to fit them together. We had a skateboard. There were some C clamps. We had something, a little door thing on rollers. We had wardrobe, and uh, and that was it. So, and my producer had a girlfriend. One of my producers had a girlfriend. So we took the girlfriend, stuffed her into Kelly Maroney's sneakers, and then we clamped the um, camera onto the skateboard. And then we had a couple of guys kind of slide this thing out of the way so it looked like an elevator door. Now, that when that movie was shown at some symposium on low budget filmmaking at Loyola or something, and they invited me to come and there were some like heavyweight film critics there at the time, Charles Champlin and, and people like that. And they ran the movie and then, and it was Charles Champlin who was saying the thing I love about Tom's work, Tom, me, the thing I love about me, my work, he was loving it. The thing that he loved was that Tom chose not to do the obvious thing. What he did is you just saw the little sister's feet when she came out of the elevator. And she's taking a little step this way and a little step that way. And we had her uh, uh, humming uh, uh, the charge of the Valkyrie or something like that. And anyway, and then she steps out. And he said, now, a lesser director, lesser than me, Dig, lesser director, would have done the Charlie's Angel thing. She would have come out and pointed her gun this way and pointed her gun that way and then snuck off. And I'm sitting there and I'm taking it all in and keeping my big fat mouth shut because that was exactly the way I had planned to do that. I was going to do the Charlie's Angels thing with the gun and everything. And that was the exact, that was, I, I thought it was going to be brilliant. That was the exact thing I was going to do. But we just didn't have the time to shoot it. So out came the skateboard, out came the producer's girlfriend, out came the, the, the sneakers, and we shot it that way. And time and time again on low-budget production, I've seen that kind of stuff work. And if a director is smart, he or she keeps his or her yap shut and just takes the credit for it, just takes the credit for it, you know? 
that's a, that that is actually for me the wonder of low budget production. I, to be honest, the bigger budget stuff that I, and I never did any sort of huge budget thing. I think Captain Ron was the biggest budget movie I did. That was like, I think twenty million, twenty four million, something like that. But I hardly ever look at that stuff. I mean, I have copies of it here. I never look at any of that stuff really. I'll, I'll pause maybe if I channel surf through it or something and take a look at it but every once in a while i'll pull out those low budget productions and and i'll, and I'll look at them i'll kind of fast forward and look at different scenes because they're like home movies at least they are to me you you remember that day that you were shooting that thing and all the crap that had gone wrong you know and how you were trying to pull it together and maybe maybe your gaffer came up with an idea you know i had one scene in one movie there was this god awful parking lot we were shooting in, and I showed up in the morning. It was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen in my life, but we had to shoot there, and it started to snow. And I said, God, thank you. <laughs> you got the cameras out, got them on, because they were going to call off shooting. And I said, No, no, shoot. The snow is going to make this. And we, we started shooting, shooting in the snow. And, you know, so often in low budget production, I mean, that's the only way you can you can really make it work is you have to be a curveball hitter and you have to, every time you swing, you have to sincerely swing and you have to know what you're doing. You have to know, um, you have to have experience in writing and in shooting, of course, directing and in editing because you're, you're doing all this stuff on the fly. Sometimes you have to sit down and write new lines. Sometimes you have to, you know, accommodate the situation, whatever it is. And, uh, and sometimes it just magically works. And people think that that's, you know, just like the thing with Kelly and her feet, you know, which weren't even her feet, you know. Now, that's the, that's the kind of stuff that I, that I always enjoyed. I always enjoyed it more than pictures where I had a lot of help. I mean, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed the money. The money was terrific. But um, I... You know, the further distance I was away from getting my hands dirty, the more inept I felt about <laughs> things, you know, because I could say, oh, man, you know, tell me I don't have any, take, you know, two thirds of this junk away and tell me I have to make the movie with a couple of C-stands and a, and a 16 millimeter camera and let me see if I can figure it out. But, um, yeah, well, but that's just me. <laughs> I've got one more question for sure. you before I uh, finally let you go. And by the way, I appreciate all this time that you've given me. Oh, well, listen, I appreciate you listening. You know, most people would have hung up on me by now. Is there any truth to the theory that Captain Ron is a prequel to Escape from New York? <laughs> no, but we did a lot of talking about Snake Pliskin while we were on that shoot. No, Captain Ron was, uh, you know... Again, Captain Ron was one of these daffy movies. I think Gross Anatomy was the only sort of straight kind of, of you know, romantic melodrama kind of program or movie that I made. The rest of them were, were all kind of quirky. And Captain Ron was certainly quirky. I'd say that it was the, probably after Night of the Comet or maybe before Night of the Comet, it's the movie that, you know, I always get these terrible questions, you know, when people say, oh, you directed movies, then you just dread it because the next question is coming. What movies have you directed? So 
for a person at working at my level, that's always an awful question because what are you going to say? You know, just start naming the filmography until I hit one that they recognize. But I can mention Captain Ron and either the person who's asking me that question or the person standing right next to me um, knows the movie. And my daughter's going, they were in college. When they got to college, it turned out that there were Captain Ron drinking games. I didn't, <laughs> yeah, they would sit down and watch Captain Ron. And every time Kurt said, boss, that's right, boss. You know, every time he said boss, you know, they take a drink. <laughs> you know, it turned out to be drinking. And a, and a friend of mine was shooting for the History Channel. And uh, he was on some some Scandinavian fishing boat somewhere. And uh, he was down in their blow decks in their, like, kind of crew lounge or whatever they had. They had some old VHS tapes. There was Captain Ron <laughs> <laughs> right there. And if you go on... Uh, if you go on, I haven't done this in a while, but I suppose it's so true. Go on uh, Google and type Captain Ron and click images. And what's going to come up, there's a few captains that actually are named Ron, but what's going to come up mostly is guys with their feet up on the back of their boat drinking a can of beer, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now, that was a lot of fun, too. Kurt was, well, Kurt stole the show, clearly. And that was, it was the studio that cast Kurt. I didn't have anything to do with it. It was presented to me as a fait accompli. And, uh, you know, I said, well, great. Okay. And Kurt and I had a couple of lunches together. And I said, yeah, but Kurt created that character. <clears throat> I had very little to do with it. First day on the set, he was walking and talking Captain Ross. <laughs> he just, he just loved it. And, uh, and he was great in it. He's the one that, uh, He's the one that floated the picture. That's another one that aged like wine too, because it it got really seriously mixed reviews when it uh, uh, in the paper, and it uh, didn't perform well uh, again with eighteen to twenty four year olds. But but, and this is like one of the times when I could really you know look Jeffrey Katzenberg in the eye and say I told you so. Uh, because I always thought Captain Ron was a family picture, and they didn't see it that way. They saw it as a touchstone picture because it had Kurt and it had Marty, and Marty at that time was on Saturday Night Live, and uh, they saw it as 18, 24-year-old 20, uh, hip kind of college movie. And when we tested it, when we went out to test it, the, it wasn't that it tested poorly, but it wasn't over the top like the studio expected because they liked the picture and it wasn't over the top and they started to get concerned and concerned and more concerned. And, and, uh, I kept telling them, give me a, cause it was, we were previewing it in front of college audiences. And I said, give me a family preview, give me a family preview. And I sounded like a broken record. They said, it's a family movie, guys, except for one use of the F word. And I can take that right out and some peekaboo nudity from Mary Kay. But I could, you know, cover that, too. But it's a family movie, family movie. And so they finally they got tired of listening to me and they gave me a family preview. And so I showed up this preview. And what it was was like soccer moms with like four and five and six kids in tow. And it was, you know, it was... Um, it was the little mermaid crowd. 
And I said, no, I'm talking about a family. I said, where are the aunts and uncles? Where are the divorced dads? And they didn't have a demographic for that. They said, we don't do those kind of previews. Nobody does. The Saturday morning uh, after the movie opened, movie opened on a Friday night, and my agent had this obnoxious habit of renting a limousine and piling us all into it and driving around the theaters and sitting and watching a little bit of the movie with different audiences. That was a dismal night in L.A. because we were going into theaters and they weren't packed. They, you know, they weren't deserted, but they weren't packed. And on opening night, theaters got to be packed. And uh, they just weren't. Mall theaters, they, they just weren't. And I knew at that point the movie was a disaster. And I never had a flop in my life. I mean, I never had a huge, huge hit, but I never had a flop either. And I went home and I was so bummed. And I had about nine gin and tonics. And I, you know, just went to bed and forgot about it. And the phone rang at 7.30 the next morning. And I knew who it was. It was Dick Cook, who was head of distribution at Disney. And I knew he was going to say, and his like jolly self, he was going to say, well, Tom, next. <laughs> and I just didn't want to hear it. So my, my wife answered. I said, tell him I'm out jogging or something. Just, you know. And so my wife answered, and she said, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, hi, Jeffrey. And I thought, I sat straight up in bed and I said, Katzenberg? Jeffrey, as in Katzenberg? He said, oh, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, oh, yes, he's here. <laughs> I took the phone. I said, hi, Jeffrey. And he said, well, buddy, got a hit, got a hit. And I thought, because the second I heard it was Katzenberg, I knew it was good news because he never calls a bad news, has somebody else do it. So, so I, he said, got a hit, buddy. And I said, and I just sort of blurted out without stopping myself. How is that possible? There was nobody in the theaters. But it turned out that that movie was doing business every hour the theaters were open all across the nation. We, we didn't, we got, we got trounced on Friday nights and Saturday nights. But every other time that those doors were open in those theaters, people were going to see it. And it stayed like number two for, I think, three or four or five weeks or something like that. But it was all because of that audience that, as far as I know, the studio was blind to. It was divorced dads who had their kids for the, for the weekend and went to see the movie. And it was for aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas with their kids who went to see the movie. And because it was a simple story, easy to follow, and it had big characters in it and, and like that. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> well, I was, that's one for me. Jeffrey's had about a million, but I had one. I had that one. Yeah. Captain Ron. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, gee whiz, I wish I had other pictures to talk about. <laughs> We've about covered them. Uh, maybe Hollow Point Angels will be out next year. Maybe. I hope so. Well, tell me. I hope so, too. It would be nice to cap off the career that way. Um, Because I just sort of one day about six or seven years ago stopped writing. (laughs) I I just lost interest. And uh, it would be, you know, so it just got longer and longer, the period of time where I hadn't written anything. And finally, I said, well, I used to write things like many years ago. But now, if if they actually make that movie, <clears throat> I'll be able to say, yeah, I wrote one more and then got out. 
Well, yeah, I, I definitely hope that that happens. That's not, it sounds like a great premise. Yeah, you can get in line behind me. I hope it happens, too. Nineteen eighty-four, big year for you. It was. I was busy in those eighties. Well, yeah, this was the same year that um, Last Starfighter came out too. That's right. Yeah, it was busy. Like I said, I was doing Days of Our Lives when I got the Last Starfighter. So I quit Days of Our Lives, and then right after the Last Starfighter, I got Night of the Comets, and then so I segued into the Mischief, and and on from there. So, what was it like uh, working on Night of the Comet? It was really fun. It was sort of guerrilla filmmaking in a way. It was very low budget. We shot, you know, we did all those downtown L.A. scenes when when nobody was there because we really didn't have the budget to hire a bunch of policemen to hold traffic. If I remember correctly, it was like, you know, the whole, whole motorcycle downtown thing. It was like early morning Christmas or something like that. Or early morning the day after Christmas. I think it was Christmas Day, from what I recall. You'll have to ask. Kelly's got a better memory about all that junk than I do. But, you know, we shot the mall scene was all night, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, We shot weird hours so that we wouldn't get in anybody's way. Um, it uh, It was really, really fun, though, because it was sort of like a group effort, you know. We all were in it together, and and I think it was a really talented um, group of people as well. So but it all worked. I mean, it was collaborative also in the sense that it was open to suggestions and ideas, and we all collaborated on that level. And then things would happen like the makeup guy wouldn't show up one day. So we were like, okay, <laughs> we'll just do our own. Oh, makeup and hair then, <laughs> um, which was fine. I mean, we all knew how to do makeup and hair, basically. It wasn't uh, that big a deal. But that, those kind of things would, would happen sort of unexpectedly. But again, um, I think we all sort of had fun doing it. The character of Reg, is, it, she's so unusual, even today, to have such a kick-ass female character and not really dependent on any man out there. I mean, Hector's great when he shows up, but you and uh, Samantha, you're taking charge. You're managing to get through the world without any kind of help. How was that reading that role back in in the early 80s? Oh, it was great. I mean, you know, at that time in my career, I wasn't philosophizing a lot about women's roles and men's roles and things like that. And in fact, at that time, I think there was a lot I don't know, sort of more openness to the idea of having a couple of girls play the lead role. Nowadays, it seems like everything's pedaled backwards, but that was one of the main things that attracted me to the role. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, I knew it was going to be some huge, massive, big studio movie, and I wasn't going to pay, be paid millions and millions of dollars, but it was a role that up to that point I hadn't been able to portray at all. I'd always been kind of the girl next door. And, and um, this showed a, a side that I hadn't been able to show before. And and honestly, it's more like my, my own personality anyway. So I, I thought it would be terrific to be able to play this independent, young, strong, 
you know, woman who could look after herself. <clears throat> and of course, the characters, you know, were raised by this green beret and not the most stable um, situation. He's he's off, you know, in Honduras or wherever he is, and we're stuck with a stepmom. <laughs> so we kind of have to look after ourselves anyway, but it's also bred into us. So. Um, you know, I think it was all justified. It wasn't like out of the blue this girl was just can wield a Mac Tim and blow away zombies. She had a back she had a background. <laughs> uh, but yeah, absolutely it was it, especially in retrospect, what an opportunity for a young woman to be able to get, carry a film or a young couple of women, you know. I you just don't see that very much anymore. Kind of reminds me almost of a little bit of a fairy tale as far as you've got the evil stepmother. <laughs> and then once she's out of the picture, you guys are able to go out and, and take care of yourselves in the wilderness. Right. Hansel and Gretel thing, or Gretel and Gretel. You know, yeah, it's, it's, I guess, similar to that. I mean, she's not featured that much, but I think that obviously she doesn't help, you know, make our home life warm and cuddly. No, there's a good reason why you want to stay out all night when you have have that to go home to, I suppose. Yeah, and that handsome boyfriend of mine, what the heck? <laughs> God, I mean, who wouldn't with Larry? What was it like working with uh, Mary Warnov and Jeffrey Lewis? Well, my heart is just broken that Jeffrey Lewis isn't with us anymore. He's a doll. He was a doll. I, I adored him. I mean, I just, everything about him, he just kind of glowed. Those blue eyes and... Such a generous, kind man, you know, uh, um, and such a good actor. So it it was an invaluable experience for me. Um, and you know, I didn't really uh, work a lot with Mary Warnoff um, in this in this movie. I actually worked with her in a movie called Things in the Gold Mine too. But again, it was just like literally, we were sort of like ships passing in the night, kind of a thing. Um, but she's cool. I mean, she's awesome. She's iconic. <laughs> so she's a little more intimidating, I have to say, than Jeffrey Lewis, because she's, she sort of carries herself in the way her character came off in the movie. And it was kind of like, I don't know if she was just in character, but um, Kelly worked more with Mary than I did. Um, and I know Kelly loved her. So it was, uh, but... Yeah, I, I feel like we were so lucky with this movie. We had such terrific actors surrounding us. It was kind of young wannabes surrounded with a really powerful cast. It was good. I think it helped, obviously, make the movie what it was. Now, had you done any of that kind of guerrilla-type filmmaking up to this point? Not really. Again, going into it, I, I wasn't sort of thinking, oh, this is going to be tough and hard and work and all that other stuff. You go into it, you're, you're grateful to have the work. You love the character, you love the story, and you just do what you have to do. It wasn't like you're struggling, you know, it wasn't horrible. It was just the hours were weird and and um, just wasn't, you know, a massive budget and that kind of a thing. But it was, it was I mean, since then I've worked on things that were, were way more bare bones than that and almost abusively where, you know, literally been put in situations that were so wrong, <laughs> you know, in terms of location and things like that, and, and just making it a miserable experience. But no, Night of the Comet was not that at all. So something where you had to do more than just your hair and makeup. Situations where you don't even have a place to change, 
you know, or, um, you know, just kind of, just not really, not, you're not fed properly, you don't have a place to even sit down, and, and it, it, it just sort of play, you know, nowadays it's very, it's easy for people to make movies. It's cheap to make movies, um, and almost anybody can do it if they want to bad enough. And a lot of people do. They think it's, you know, they'll graduate from college or whatever. And, you know, normally a lot of these kids will have money from their parents or something like that. And then they'll decide they want to make a movie. And they don't really know what that means exactly. And they certainly don't know kind of, I want to say, etiquette of making a movie. I mean, making movies back in the 80s and 90s, there was there there was it, it was fun it was it was glamorous you were treated well as an as his crew was treated everybody was treated well i mean yeah so it was kind of guerrilla filmmaking i say but we still had our own trailers we had a makeup trailer we had food we had a place to stay at night you know like that and nowadays people just will make movies as cheaply as possible and take advantage of the actors and the crew um, and treat you just badly so that it's just, it's, it, it's not, it's, you don't even want to be there. And, and maybe I'm spoiled, but back in the day, and it, they still have, of course, you know, movies in general. I'm just talking about some specific experiences that I've had that I will never do again or work with those people again because of it. Um, they don't understand how important it is to, create a, a, an atmosphere that people want to get up in the morning and, and go to work and do the best work that they can because they know they're treated well and respected. And I've had a couple of experiences where that wasn't the case and it's just not good. <laughs> but again, it's, it's easy. It's cheap to make movies nowadays. So some, and, and people want to work. So they get away with it to a certain degree, but it, hopefully, you know, well, it seems like you have to have that level of, I don't know, mental safety just to be able to put on the performance that you need to do and to be able to reach into those depths that you need to do to give that. You need to feel supported. Everybody does. So, I mean, actors for sure, because, you know, when, you, when you're playing a character, you're, it's kind of, you feel very vulnerable and they're sort of revealing maybe dark, places or whatever, whatever it is you're doing to create this character. And you need to feel like you're in a supported environment. And, and when that doesn't happen, it doesn't make for real good work. What was your relationship like with Robert Beltran? Great. He's a really he's a nice guy. Was, you know, I'm, I'm sort of sad that we lost track. Kelly and I are still really good friends. Um, I've been in touch with Sharon Farrell um, through Facebook, and also her son was in in uh, the movie. At the very end, he was a little blonde boy. That was Sharon Farrell's son. And we sort of—it's funny with Facebook how you can, you know, find people from your past, obviously. Um, so we've been, but uh, yeah, Robert Beltran. You know, obviously he went on to do a billion other things, and he's like a big movie star now. But he was a great guy. He was really sort of very sexy, you know. He was kind of like this really sexy, handsome, smart guy. So it was easy to to 
you know, play a character that is attracted to him. I, I didn't even really think of it that not only do you have the two female leads, but then that the third lead, the male lead, is playing a Latino character, too, which is also rather unusual, even in these days. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of nice to have a little bit of... A little color on difference. the screen. A little color, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I was reading a thing about female directors in, in Hollywood and how it's very difficult to kind of break into the boys' club, which is Hollywood. And and there's sort of immediate feeling of what it means to be a female director and what you're capable of and blah, blah, blah. And I, I feel, and, and the kinds of movies that are made these days and the, the fact that maybe a female director uh, um, wouldn't be appropriate to do like Superman or something like that, which is so ridiculous, of course. And I mean, I'm just, when I talk about female, I'm talking about people of color, people, the females, not the the people that are running the industry right now, which are white males. And and I also I feel like part of the problem with the industry right now, especially with the multi-million dollar movies that are made these days, is that the people that are running the studios aren't necessarily interested in art, which we're actors, we consider ourselves artists, and writers consider themselves artists. DPs, you know, photographers feel that they're, they bring art to the movie. The people that are creating or, or, or deciding what movies are made don't care about the art. They care about the money. And I think that that is one of the biggest problems with the industry. If you look back, year, like 80s, 70s, 60s, back to when, uh, you know, talkies, even silent films were first created, you saw much more diversity in terms of cast and strong female leads, colored, you know, in the cast, movies about people of color. And you just don't see that anymore because the, the executives who are running the studios, who are businessmen, are saying, oh, Superman 1, you know, made a ton of money. Let's do Superman 2. It's just, it's just, it's sad to me. It, it's a business that's run by um, money financial people, not people who are interested in making interesting, uh, colorful, uh, dynamic, um, social commentary or, or any kind of movie. They're all the, all, all they're interested in is making lots of money. And that, that is a crime to me. And hopefully little, the little people like me and those of us who are trying to make independent movies can survive and, and even, uh, worm our way back into the mainstream. You worked with one of, to me, at least one of the most famous female directors that has ever been, which is Penelope Spheris on Dudes. What was yeah. that experience like? Oh, I loved that so much. It was fantastic. She, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I'm trying to think if I've even worked with, yeah, I, I worked with Mary Lambert. I'm trying to think of the female directors that I've worked with since, but she definitely stood out. She was quite a character, but in total, you know, just so such an interesting perspective and um, so energetic and and into what she was doing. I mean, this this movie for me was like kind of a dream come true because I I, I really again I played sort of a 
I don't know, kind of a tomboyish character. I had that short, bright red hair, which I loved. It was just fun for me to, you know, create a character that's completely different from another character. Riding the horses, shooting the guns, and having this crazy kind of cross-punk thing going on. Um, Loved it. Loved it. (laughs) Yeah, I loved that. And I still, that movie is one of my favorite movies because it's so weird, you know? And and that's what Penelope brought to it, that sort of craziness. I mean, she, she was amazing. Yeah, I love the way that it kind of embraces the punk ethos. And I mean, having Flea and leaving in there was pretty awesome. Yeah. Oh, my God. Again, what an incredible cast. Dan Roebuck and I are still buds. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just love it. I love the look of it. I I, I love the feel of it. I, I think it's such a, a cool movie <laughs> in, a, in a weird, funny way. I love watching that movie. Had you done much horseback riding before that? Well, I'm um, yes, I had done. I mean, I I've never owned a horse or anything like that, but I'm I'm like a, I've been passionate about horses since I was a little girl. I had horse books. I knew everything about horses. I go to horse camp in the summer, <clears throat> but we we couldn't afford to have a horse. So, but if, whenever a horse was near, I was next to it. Put it that way. Um, I have a real affinity horses so uh, yeah again it was just like oh my god i get to get on a horse and gallop across a field you know this is the best thing ever unfortunately i ended up breaking my arm but other than that it was fun but it was so weird i had the shot i don't know if you remember the shot where you know uh jonathan john is uh, on the horse behind me and, and I'm galloping across. He's trying to keep up and I, I'm coming towards the camera and I'm supposed to just gallop right by the camera, uh, like camera right or something. <clears throat> and um, somebody pulled up a, a car right behind the camera, right where I was supposed to exit. So instead of, and I was supposed to go as close to the camera as possible. So instead of saying, you know, I kind of think we need to do this again because I'm going to run right into that jeep or whatever it was i decided oh well i'll pull the horse back as soon as i get past the, the camera try to be all heroic and stuff well the horse stopped like on a dime and i kept going and i went right into this jeep and landed on my forearm and broke my ulna um and then we had like three more days of shooting left so we had this cast that i could take off and i was on all these trucks <laughs> oh. so that was fun <laughs> but um yeah but but i i loved it uh yeah i mean talk about this is the thing about being an actor you get to just just live vicariously through your characters you know like god damn this weird cowboy person and now i'm a rock and roll singer yay (laughs) now i'm this and now i'm that it's so much fun Get to play dress up for for real for your, for your life. It's yeah. like being a little kid playing pretend. I mean, I'm so over actors who are oh so very serious and you know. I, I trust me, I've been criticized for not really specifically criticized, but uh, I guess I don't know, sort of looked down upon by other actors who are. Oh, so very serious about the character, the letter, the, and the, on and on and on. Because I go in 
just thinking, this is the best day of my life. I am, I am doing this, and I get to pretend I'm fat, and I'm like, woohoo! And there are some actors that are like, I must like dig, dig, dig into the depths of my soul to be this fairy princess or whatever. And relax and enjoy yourself. I mean, yes, it's difficult if you have to prepare to be, you know, uh, um, a character that is devastated or whatever her life, whatever. I mean, obviously that is a different kind of preparation, but, but for the most part, just, it's just pretend it really is. You're not a Holocaust survivor every day of the week. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that would be difficult, but that's also in a way there's a, for me, there's a joy to a joy in the process of creating a character that's, that's devastated somehow. It's a very liberating experience, and you get to be something that you're not every day. I know one of the the things that seems to be happening more now than it has in the past is this whole idea of revival screenings and, you know, oh, we're going to get the cast of whatever movie and come out and do a screening at the Alamo Draft House or whatever. Are you ever involved in things like that? I just did the Alamo Draft House with... Um yeah, with um, the apple. Um, yeah, which was really, really fun. <laughs> I had a gas. And again, there are also people that, um, if they've done some sort of a movie like that, which is insane, <laughs> they're like, oh, no, you know, I don't want to talk about it. It's, you know, it's not Shakespeare or whatever. My attitude is, you know, first of all, it was the very first movie I ever did. I didn't know what I was doing, but it sure was fun. I, you know, I just sort of reveled in the whole thing. And yeah, it, I look at it, everybody says, do you realize it was going to be like this cult thing? I'm like, I didn't know what I was doing from the moment I walked on the set. I, I wasn't thinking about who in 30 years from now is going to be a cult film. And, you know, the reason it's a, a, the cult thing that it is is because it's just so weird. <laughs> And you got to, you know, so what? It's it's weird and you did it. Enjoy it. Revel in it, you know. Make fun of it. Make fun of yourself. Don't, it doesn't have to be a thing that it destroys you. If you talk about it, it's going to destroy your career or something like that. No, it's fun. It's, it's so much fun getting up there and doing the Q&A and they're asking like, you know that car that flew off in the end? Was that like a Mercedes or was that like a Cadillac or who was that? I'm like, I have no idea. So we all watched it, you know, at the end I was like, I think it's a Cadillac. <laughs> yeah, it was it was crazy, but so what? Fun. People enjoy it. Why be a deadbeat about it? It must have been so much fun to watch that with an audience. Yeah, an audience that you know, appreciates it for what it is. The people are generally pretty wacko themselves, but some of them are diehard, man. They they love that stuff. It's it's great. Why not? It's just escapism. You know, movies, after all, are just a, a they're a form of entertainment. They're meant to entertain you in every way possible. I'm am so appreciative that you are willing to talk about any role that you've done because there are so many people where it's like no no I'll talk about anything but that one thing but that one yeah oh there's lots of people on the Apple that will talk about it that's for sure that's why I am there to take over and talk about it all 
um, yeah, it's it's true. You you just have to if you enjoy it, then our job is done. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate this. Well, thank you. It was fun. And it's kind of nice talking to somebody I've talked to before. I was thinking about that. I'm sort of a little more relaxed. I know who you are. You know, when you, I've done several of these podcasts, and sometimes it's like, well, sometimes the people are not as good as you, first of all, or, or else they'll say, uh, uh, you know, so how long do you have? I'm like, oh, as long as you want. Thinking, oh, it'll be like half an hour, 45 minutes. Talk. Hour and a half later, <laughs> we're on like we're on like the third movie I ever did. I'm like, oh lord. <laughs> anyway, it was a pleasure talking to you as well, and um, I look forward to hearing the podcast. How did you get into acting? I always wanted to be an actress, and um, I would watch movies, these old, you know, old movies on TV with my mom when I was supposed to be in bed, and I just thought that would be the greatest thing to do in the whole world. And then, um, let's see, we didn't really have a theater department or anything when I was in school, so I went and my mother found out that we had that they had an apprenticeship at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, and so I went and I did that. And then I wanted to go to the National Shakespeare Company Conservatory um, early on because I had already graduated and all that, and, and um, I was going to do that. It was really kind of funny. I had five hundred dollars in my pocket, and I was going to. And moving to Manhattan, had no place to live or anything like that. And when I got there, um, I was looking for a place to live, and um, nobody's going to rent to a, a teenager with no job and five hundred dollars. And <laughs> um, so I landed at this apartment rental um, place where this woman said to me, "I don't know. I'll try to help you if I can find you, or like a roommate finding thing." She said, but my um, my friend is a, is a, an agent, and she is telling me that they're looking for some kind of a little leader on a soap opera. So why don't you go talk to her? So I did, and I had one photograph of myself, and I slid it. She sent me over, and she said, they're closed, but slide it under the door. We'll see what happens. And so I did, and then I got called, and I, and I ended up auditioning. And, boy, was I green. You know, it was like way out of my anything I could possibly have um, imagined doing. And I, and I got it. So that was that. And then that was extremely great on-the-job training. It was that Ryan's Hope? Yeah, working every single day. And well, also, it legitimized me, too, because, I mean, I started when I think of a, a, a teenager from Minnesota going to New York City with no money, Um you know, just landing in Manhattan. It sounds like the beginning of a <laughs> of some kind of a movie. And I, I just sort of, I think in, in life when you take a huge step like that, the world shifts too. And, and you kind of make a wonderful in time. So things that would never happen happen just because you made such a, a huge jump. For, you know, you, you made such a huge decision for yourself that the rest of the world kind of, adjust itself too. I think, I mean, most people will have a story like that, I think.
I mean, not like that, but I mean, of some kind, you know, where something just extraordinarily unusual that never could have, could have happened, happened. What was that experience like for you, being this kind of new actress on the scene, working on this soap? I mean, were your uh, co-stars uh, supportive of you, of being this kind of newbie to the scene? It was kind of a shock for everybody, I think. And the woman who played my mom on the soap, Louise Schaefer, she had, you know, it was her storyline, too. So she very wisely took me under her wing and, and basically taught me how to do soap opera acting, which is really on the fly and crying on cue and, you know, understanding the breakdown of the character. Each character has, you know, an ABC way that they, especially evil characters, they push plot. So there's, you know, there's scenes where you instigate, there's scenes where you, um, you know, just various ways that they structure that writing that you have to fulfill. I mean, there's things that were way out of my experience, but day in and day out, I started to get the hang of it because I was doing it. And that red light went on whether I was going to be ready or not. And I could, there's no way I was going home and saying, well, I had the soap opera job, but I couldn't do it. And, and there's just, there was no way. So I just learned it, you know. And she was, she's wonderful, and we're still friends to this day. But um, she was very, very wise to, I don't know, she was, see, again, there's a reason. Um, there's a reason bigger than that of, you know, how, why, of all the actresses in New York City, why did I get to be cast as her daughter, you know, just weird stuff. But I'm sure many people would have gone, you know what, I hate this storyline, let's just kill it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just not going to work with this green little teenager, I'm just not going to do it. But that, w- that was probably more likely what should have happened, but it did not. Now, this isn't necessarily related to acting, though it might be, I'm not sure. But you were on an episode of Family Feud around this time when they were doing uh, soap opera stars against one another. Yes. What was that experience like? Well, it was really fun. For some reason, it kicked in. My competitive streak kicked in, and I just decided I was going to win. And, and you know, I mean, I just think as, as, as long as you're standing there, you might as well win, you know? <laughs> you, could st- you, you could just, like, go through the experience, but as long as you're doing it, you know, do it, do it well. So, I, just, I don't know, just sort of weird, maniacal, competitive streak. <laughs> kicked in and, and I thought I'm going to win this <laughs> but it was it was interesting it was, it was great I mean it was out of anyone's experience that, that was not a time when they were sending soap opera people to do game shows or anything like that it was kind of the rise of the daytime actor in a weird way because they went in they, they you know they um, started really paying attention to soaps at that period timing is everything you just you just happened to get there when they were starting to make a big deal out of the younger storylines and, you know, Luke and Laura and everybody had one of those kind of things going on for the summer. They're trying to get in a younger audience and it was just a great time to be on daytime TV. As soon as you said that it was the rise of the network stars, I was just like, oh yeah, the Luke and Laura wedding was exactly. right around there. Exactly, Luke and Laura, and um, that was the same network I was on, and they went, hey, let's do this on every soap. <laughs> so they got, they, it, you know, it wasn't just me, there was a, a whole bunch of like really teeny bopper storylines, because they thought, the kids are all home this summer, but why don't we get make sure that they're watching us instead of, 
you know, because I mean, it's no secret when you're home with your mom, the 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 the, um, the stories are on in the background. You know, why not attract the younger people? So that was that period, and I just again just happened to hit that period of time. Now, how did you make the move to um, start working in films, especially going to Los Angeles? Well, like I said, I, I had this, the storyline that was, you know, kind of an attention grabber because they just took my character and I just did everything. Um, and so um, people, I was a working actress, so I didn't have to go through a whole bunch of horrible stuff that, a lot of actresses have to go through to break into the business because there I was. I had a job. I had a good agent because I had a good job. You know, I mean, it, it all just sort of clicked together. I had a good agent because I had a good job. And, I, you know, people, I was on TV already. It, I was already a viable. You could already say, oh, she's on national television. It must be okay to bring her in. <laughs> Even though a lot of I just felt like I was, Someday they're going to find out I don't belong here, which I understand now. I didn't understand at the time. Everybody feels that way when they're given a tremendous opportunity. They know everyone has that feeling of, oh, no, they're going to find out that they shouldn't have done this. But that's how it happened, and I got to be, you know, well-known within the within the industry community there. So it was a natural thing to bring in the, you know, the young actresses that already have careers. And so I got to, you know... That's how I got the opportunities to be seen for like fast times, and you know, and then from fast times, my agent said, you know, you don't sing. I mean, I don't sing, and I'm not a dancer, and that's Broadway. So, said so if you don't want, you know, if you want to do things other than daytime, you know, there's Broadway here in New York. I mean, but you have to, you're gonna have to really get yourself ready for the idea of moving to Los Angeles because that's where, the, at the time, especially that's where the work was. Um, film and television. I didn't want to because I was scared. I went, came out here to do Fast Times and I couldn't drive and I didn't know anybody and I couldn't wait to get back to New York. And that t- I had to do that a few times before I um, I had enough guts to stay in Los Angeles and learn to drive and meet people and go through the... You'd think, you know, you go to Los Angeles, you go to New York and you don't know anybody and you get along fine. So then you come to Los Angeles and you don't know anybody. It was it was harder, I think. Maybe because I'd already done it. I don't know. I'd already been working my butt off for a couple of years, and, you know. And there I was doing it again. So I, um, it just sounds like, and I guess it was. I just got there at the right time. I was in the right place, and I just was able to have so many incredible opportunities that you know you just can't plan for. You can't you can't make that up. It just I just stepped in it. <laughs> I just stepped in it. The luckiest person in the world. When did you finally make the move uh, full time? It took me a few times, and I came out here, and and I, I went back to New York, and then I found out that I'd gotten out of the comet. And then after that, I realized um, you can't keep doing this. I mean, it's too expensive. To you got to make a commitment here. You can't keep running back to New York. I mean, you, you know, it was, it was silly. And so um, I decided to stay. And it was um, it was a couple of years before I got comfortable because, you know, I wasn't a big driver and I didn't know where I was. And I swear I got lost about the first three years I was here. <laughs> I 
Pretty, you know, there's a fork in the road and you have to decide. There really was no decision to make. It was just me having to get used to being in. And now I love it. You know, I mean, I would never live anyplace else. I don't think I could. The variety of experiences here in Los Angeles, it's my home. I love it. And I can't imagine, I'm, I'm sure I could live someplace else, but I, I wouldn't want to. Now I just feel like I've always been here, but it took years to feel that way. How did you find out about Night of the Comet? Was that through your agent? I was through my agent. Yeah, it was just one of the things that they sent me on when I got here. And um, I wanted to audition for um, Reggie because I thought it's time that I, you know, I, I was really getting tired of playing, playing the little kid, you know. And I really didn't understand my Nowadays, it, you know, you really know your type and you know your brand, and we didn't have that then, you know. And, and so, actors notoriously have no idea how they're perceived, you know, especially when you're younger. And so, I didn't realize that I was gonna, you know, that I had a, um, I was gonna be like the one with the wisecracks, and I didn't realize that, you know, that kind of thing. I thought, why can't I play Reggie? And I, I said, can I just play Reggie? And they went, can I just read for Reggie? And, and the producers went, no, you're Sam. And I went, come on. Just, it, it, but they already had Kathy. I'm just in mind for that because of the last Starfighter and everything. There was just no way. But I didn't know that. And I thought, it would be great for me to have a, a stronger, be the, you know, be the, be the big sister and... And actually, as it turned out, I had such a blast playing Samantha. I would have felt very restricted playing Reggie. But, you know, you don't know these things. So how did you approach the character once you got Samantha? How did, what did you decide to do with her? She's a combination of a relative of mine and then Tom Everhart. Well, he he'd said, you know, who the, the character went through a metamorphosis as it does when they pick the actor that's going to play her. But his original thing was, I want her to be super annoying, and he thought that they were probably going to kill her, that character off. And so he said, you know, give me that, you know, somebody like that cheerleader, that irritating cheerleader in that other comic. And they went, well, funny enough, we can actually get you that irritating cheerleader. <laughs> we can have her come in. And so but after I got the part, Tom Everhart said to me, um, you know, and, and actually watched it with me, um, my man Godfrey and he's sitting at Carol Lombard and he said that's what I want now he didn't mean um, be Carol Lombard but he meant that kind of he wanted that point counterpoint between the sisters even though um, you know not to not to to copy it but to just and that gave me a, a real hook into it and that was pretty much everything I needed to see he just hooked into a communication with me like that um, I just got what he wanted. I just understood. And then I also had a wonderful coach, too. Roy London, when he was alive, was a fantastic coach. And for some reason, I realized I just something spoke to me about that um, story about being the last person on Earth. And I just thought that, that it struck such a human, essential chord. And I really went for it. I just, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't miss one single... Thing in that script where I could, I don't know, it just, it just inspired me somehow. I just really wanted it to be, to bring out the humanity of that. And it was in the, sometimes, it, you know, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. <laughs> There's only so much you can do. Uh, uh, you know, if your only lines are, let's go! <laughs> but there, there was opportunity in there, and 
And so, uh, again, you know, parts like that do not come along. One more time, I came to Los Angeles right during that period of time when female hair in the 80s, when female characters were heroes and they were being written. And it didn't occur to me that that was an odd thing. I just thought, yeah, I get that. You know, I was getting a lot of these great parts. But my soap opera characters were great. And I said, you know, then I came back to the comment and I just, I didn't realize that that was not always the case. And as a matter of fact, in a couple of years, we went into kind of the dark ages in the 90s where women went back to being the girlfriend. You know, you just don't see the, the broader things of this, but one more time, I just, that, you know, I hate to be like right place, right time, but, um, you know, ready or not, it, it's the, the moment is there, and I just happen to get very lucky in, in, in both sides of the United States. You and Catherine could have played it so differently. I mean, it could have been the, you know, Romy and Michelle with machine guns instead of Reg and Samantha, just because both of you are very kick-ass, albeit in your own ways, when it comes to those roles. None of the comment was actually, I mean, if you look at it, it's satire. And it was written pretty sarcastically, and it could have gone that way. And the, the funny thing was it was a team of producers, and one of them, um, um, you know, had an acting background. And that's how I met Roy London. I said, I'd like to have a coach with this. And, and he really, you know, encouraged me to... to study with Roy and he knew him having been in class with him and that's how I was able to meet him again no idea it was Roy London one of the greatest acting coaches you know of the 20th century <laughs> no idea and Roy said I'll coach anybody on the movie that that wants you know as a favor to him and nobody else wanted to but I went to him and I think it made a big difference for me um, but one producer thought that this was a serious movie one producer thought that it was funny but also had the underpinnings of it. It has to be come from some kind of reality. And between the three, Tom and and, the, and Andy and Wayne, the three of their visions, I mean, we did a couple of takes, and somehow, I mean, a lot of things. You can see it, too. When the movie came out, it didn't really know what it wanted to be. It's like, is this a comedy? Is this a serious movie? It was kind of, a, it became its own thing for a while. I mean, they kind of landed on, it's an action, comedy, horror movie. <laughs> they didn't really know. Um, nobody did. I mean, you know, when it came out, people were, just, you know, reviewed and stuff like that, reviewing it. And so um, I think that kind of reflects what happened with it, too. And there's a million ways to tell a story. And, um, for example, the scene on the car when, when um, Sam starts crying and realizes, she, you know, denial breaks through and she realizes nobody's there. Um, they wanted, you know, there, there was, that scene was almost cut because they went, the scene doesn't belong in this movie. What's she crying about? And they almost cut it and they, but the audience tested it. And Tom Everhart says, and I, you know, I thought this is the dumbest scene ever. It's going to go, it's going to go. And one of the producers said, no, it stays. It was like, you know, kind of high drama. It's like this scene is going, this scene is staying. I didn't know any of this was going on. But the Tom Eberhardt goes, uh, I, I looked around and, and I heard this sniffling. And it was you know, teenage kids. And I realized they're crying. They identify with this. Okay, it stays. And they didn't really do as much uh, post-production on it, as a matter of fact. You can see because um, I went in and looped it and stuff like that. But um, because they thought this is for sure going. It doesn't fit the movie. We must have been high when we shot that. I don't know. <laughs> 
and actually, it's my favorite scene in the movie. Because I think it, it just, it's, it's, it, you know, with all the running around in the airhead and stuff, it shows that the characters really know what's going on. But it could, even, the way it was written, it could have just gone, like, really um, surfacey, too. What was it like working with Catherine Mary Stewart? Well, we met the first day we shot, and because we both come from a daytime TV background, we just got it done, you know? And I just felt like I like I knew her already for some reason. And she thought, this, we're still friends. We're still, she's like a, a dear friend of mine. It's just um, really good casting. I mean, we look nothing alike. And I said one time to the producer, I said, you know, we look nothing alike. I mean, because I just thought it was weird that we were sisters. And he said, I know. You know why? There's something in this movie for everyone. (laughs) 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 If you like little blondes. It's one thing if you, you know, if you like. And actually, one of the the little Asian girl in the, says, um, um, the little boy says to her, about Kathy is, oh, wow, she's what a cool looking girl. And, and the Asian girl goes, if you like the type. And I just thought, that is so sexist and yet so, such good filmmaking in another way, too. I couldn't, they didn't know how to feel about that. That's really sexist and it's a really good idea. And then when I went to do interviews for the film, I could tell when the interviewers didn't, hadn't really watched the movie. Because they'd say, okay, so this is you and a friend. I go, uh, you didn't watch the movie. <laughs> I have a poster of Fast Times Original High from England. From, and, and UK posters are, are horizontal instead of vertical like, like we have them. And it's the funniest thing. It's a drawing of, of the characters in Fast Times Original High. And again, I think the illustrator didn't watch the movie because he's got who's supposed to be Stacy Jennifer Jason Lee, in a turquoise and fuchsia cheerleading outfit. And I thought, you probably saw, you know, around the same time, and figured, oh, yeah, I know that girl. I think I've seen this or something. Because it has nothing to do with the Stacy character. Last time, it kind of looks like he drew my outfit on her. And it's it's hilarious. I just I looked at that poster, and I think, see, people are rushed. <laughs> We're all rushed, and, and sometimes some really screwy things come out of it. It's a great poster. You got to share some really good screen time with Mary Warrenov. What was she like? Well, I she looks so stern. You know, the day she came on, I'm like, wow, because she, you know, she's tall and she's, you know, she's got a lot of presence, but it's pretty serious. And so I didn't know what to expect, and turns out she was the most gentle, motherly greatest actress to work with. I mean, that scene, she just, she blew me away because I did not expect that. You know, I, I guess on the page, it looks like I'm a scientist, blah, blah, blah. I did not really anticipate how giving she was going to be. How, you know, like I said, almost motherly she came off. It was great working with her. And then she also ended up in Chopping Mall, although I didn't get to work with her that day. Which is kind of a nice throwback to... Um Eating our owl because aren't they playing the blands? They're in that playing as well? the blands, yeah, and the opening. Tom Eberhard touched on this a little bit. Um, can you tell me more about how you managed to come back from the dead in Night of the Comet? Well, I think originally I was supposed to die, and then then uh, Reggie and Hector were supposed to find a baby at the end. And when the producers, now this is all I know, and I was not there at the time, said. We can't kill that character. The audience will walk out. 
And so they just had me be, um, be you know, that they rearranged it. When I first got the script, it was um, Teenage Comet Zombies. And, in fact, my agent said, don't worry about the title. They're changing that. <laughs> I'm good because that sounds stupid. <laughs> um, I wanted to be a serious actress. I'll have you know. You know, I thought, okay, I'm going to study, 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 and I'm going to be, you know, Betty Davis. And that was what I had in mind. I had, you know, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. But I was, you know, I was stuck. I did that, never dreamt I was going to be in independent, weird little movies. But, you know, when you have, when you're, when you're surviving on what you make as an actor. As a matter of fact, my agent said to me at one point, please don't take everything you're offered. You know, it's going to end up hurting you in the long run. I go, well, how am I going to pay my rent? And then that was before the internet too. So I said, no one will ever see this. <laughs> this is a lucky break. I have the rent and no one will ever see it. Well, if it wasn't for the internet, nobody, you know, they, the internet really made those movies well known. I have the internet to thank for my fan base. Because a lot of those people would never, never have seen those movies otherwise. Yeah, tell me about the fans. You told me uh, when we talked briefly last time that when you started to meet some of the fans of Night of the Comet, they actually told you more about the movie than you seemed to know about? Yes, I mean, you, well, you do a movie when you're an actor, and, and then you go on and you try to get another job. And so I really hadn't thought of it. As a matter of fact... Um, when I got, I, I hit a weird age range when I just wasn't, I was so spoiled. I was used to, okay, I'm one of the leads of the movie, <laughs> you know, I'm the guest star of the episode or whatever it was. I hit this weird age range where nobody was going to cast me as a lawyer because I wasn't, the, you know, that brand. I had a hard time making that transition in everyone's mind, not just mine, but in everyone's mind, you know, the little teenager from the 80s with the with the perm all of a sudden I had a very tough time so anyway I was not making a, a good enough living I wasn't getting cast enough and so I had to figure out what else can I do to support myself and so I went into holistic healing I actually um you know I had to take a break and, and learn something else for a while because it just wasn't enough to to support me and um I did not have it in my mind that anybody knew anything I'd ever done. I mean, I would get recognized I, to this day. Like, it, it's either, I, mean, I have this weird career because if you don't, if you haven't had, happened to watch daytime TV or be a genre movie fan, I can get it. You don't know. Cool. You know, you've never seen anything on it. But if you happen to watch soap operas or you happen to be a fan of those movies, you can't miss me. <laughs> they, they, they hear my voice. They're like, I know that voice. Or whatever it is. So it was weird because I, I couldn't really make a, a transition into just like, oh, I'm going to go be, um, you know, do what I was going to do before I got into these movies because people, I'm, you know, like, why aren't you in the movies? <laughs> it was really, really, really sad. Are you, re- are you researching a role? No, I'm paying my rent. Um, um, so I, anyway, I did, I did not really know that anybody knew those movies or anything like that. I was just kind of focused on how am I going to still act and yet make make a living. And then all of a sudden, people started to tell me, oh, my God, there's, you know, there's this site that talks to, and, and through the Internet, I realized that people love this stuff. And then it just started to make sense to me. Um, you know, whether you have a hard time or an easy time, there's no way you're going to escape what 
what you wanted to do in the first place. So why don't you just do what you wanted to do in the first place? And I just sort of gave up and I went, yeah, you know, I want to do what I, I wanted to do and I'm sure it'll work out somehow. So what were some of those interesting things that people told you that you weren't necessarily aware of? I mean, I didn't know that they were fan sites, and I didn't know that there were all these articles and everything. I mean, who would have thought that to this day, right now, I'm sitting here giving an interview about Night of the Comet. Who would have thought? Right. <laughs> so, of course, I didn't know, you know, um, and and so um, if it wouldn't have been for that. And then people started asking me if I would do those convention things, and I had no idea what they were. When I first came to town, um. After I did Chopping Mall, people told me about the about the conventions, and I went, and I just thought it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. And I said, you know, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to. And someone said, well, you know, if you have a website, and people people will write to you and send you photographs. And I went, ah, that sounds like a from, from those many years ago. Who would care about that? I'm not going to do that. I mean, it, actually, I was so dumb about it that you had to tell me the most basic thing. It was just out of anything I could have possibly understood. <laughs> um, and in the studio days, the actors never knew anything about that. They would just, the studio would send that stuff out, 8 by 10s and whatever. And they certainly don't do that now. It's, you know, part of the actor actor's business to do that. Yeah, and I had to be told about all that stuff. It was really kind of kind of funny now that I think about it. I think a lot of people. I mean, I see I see actors now coming in, and maybe it's their first convention or something. It's really something nobody tells you about, or um, you just kind of have to learn it on your feet. Somebody has to tell you. Would you like to do this show? It's okay to do this show, and I'll I'll do your first one with you, and I'll help you. That's how you you learn how to do it. But now now they have um, they have um, managers, you know. Um, um, Bookers, and then they'll they kind of help actors, and then you know they take a percentage and stuff like that. But um, if when you when you first learn that somebody just invites you to do a show and you have no idea, I mean you know we, we always think that in the industry it's all learning on your feet, but I think a lot of a lot of businesses are like that, not just not just um, the entertainment industry. It's all about learning on your feet. I know that the shoot for uh, Night of the Comet was pretty quick, it sounds like. Not compared to today. I think, no, I mean, now they can shoot something in, in a nanosecond. It was, quick for the, it was quick for that day. I mean, for that, you know, in the, that day and time, I mean. Um, but now we, I don't think we would think of that as a shopping mall, too. I think that was like maybe a three-week shoot. Um, and we thought that was crazy fast. Not by today's standards, but, and you know, you're going every single day, you know, taking advantage of every single minute you have on that location or with those people or, yeah, there's, people always say, where are the outtakes? Like, there were no outtakes. Everything we shot in that movie, you know, and you get in there and you have to go so fast. It's, okay, do one take, it's successful, and then do another one to make sure you're covered, and then, you, you know, what else can we shoot while we still have the light? We just went that fast. Well, it's interesting. You you brought up the, you know, the crying scene, and then how you almost died in the film, and all this. Were there things that just didn't make the cut as far as things being tweaked and being uh, eliminated as you went along? No, not that I know of. I think we shot every single thing that was on those pages. I really do. 
Yeah, I mean the the scene where we're in the um, we're talking about <clears throat> the last guy on Earth. That was originally on I think on some supposed to be on somebody's lawn. But they we have these cool buildings that shoot it here. It's scarier. It's really weirder that they're on all this concrete. Yeah, stuff like that. But uh, my and Tom might have a, a different remembrance of it. But my remembrance of it is that it was pretty much just as he wrote it. Yeah, you know, it was a funnier script. I read it on the plane, and just it read so funny. I was sitting there laughing to myself, and I felt like an idiot. And then, it actually, as he played the reality, it actually lost some of its comedy because because of the situation. But just to read the dialogue would just scream. It was, you know, really. Well, it was a satire. You know, it was really, really funny. So yeah, I, I don't I don't think that there was any real, real change in anything. We did, except for, we would, you know, you always get pages, like the pink pages come and the blue pages come and the green pages come, and things have been tweaked here and there. Tom thought of a funnier line for that scene, or, you know, at one point, that whole thing of Daddy would have gotten us Uzi's came, it was not written. It came out of the fact that we had these, um, Tom wanted Uzi's, but they were, they didn't have it, it wasn't in the budget, so they got us these mock tents. And, he knew enough about guns to know that they'd never make it with mock tents because they jam and all this. And well, sure enough, we're trying to do this scene where I'm shooting up a car, and it jams and jams and jams. And he goes, Kelly, he comes over to me. He goes, if that happens again, just keep going. Because, again, we didn't have time for the gun to work. Just keep going and just say something to Kathy about it and then walk off. And I said, like, what? And he goes, how about, and he goes, well, that's the problem, because Tom talks like, well, that's the problem with these things. Daddy, we got this easy. So I went, okay, and so I did. And I don't, th- I don't know if Kathy knew that was colored or not. I think she might have. I don't remember that much, but I just, I just handed it to him. That was just Tom responding to the fact that they should have, you know, he, he would say, you should have spent the money to get the proper gun. That's why we're having this trouble. <laughs> So stuff like that, sure, that happened. But pretty much I remember that that was... And, you know, I wish so much that I had saved those scripts, but I don't have them. I wish... There's a lot of things I wish that I had just kept everything, but I had no idea, again, that it was going to, you know, be something anybody would be interested in seeing. But had I known, I would have saved it. And what are your memories when it comes to how the film was received when it came out? Well, it, it was it was a bigger deal than I thought it was going to be. And... You know, there we were on Cisco and on Ebert. You know, go see it. Go see Kelly Maroney. I mean, Tom, I think Tom gave me a copy of that Cisco and Ebert because it was just astonishing. And, you know, one more time, um, I was sitting around here going, how am I going to make a living? And I went back on the soap for a while. So I was in New York City when it opened. And all of a sudden, it was this big deal. And I'd seen it, and, you know, I mean, we'd worked so hard on it that it didn't really surprise me that it was getting a lot of attention, actually. Um, I was not sophisticated enough to know, you know, well, for this budget and this country, I didn't know any of that stuff. I was really pleased. And then all of a sudden, everyone was like, where is that, you know, because in Los Angeles, if you open and you catch people's attention, where is that girl? And where was I? I was in sitting in New York City, stuck on a soap opera. I could have... I wanted to shoot somebody, <laughs> but that's the way it goes, you know. So I, I tried to get back out to California as fast as I could. I really did kind of miss that heat, which is a shame. But again, timing works for you and timing works against you. Now, was your next feature, was that Chopping Mall? The next feature I did, um, 
little thing called the Zero Boys, and um, that was a three. That was maybe a three week shoot. See, I wish I remembered because now it's important. How many weeks was that? I don't remember. You know, I just remember we we started shooting and we shot on the dead run, and then we were done. You know, um, um, and then because I'd done. I just did the Zero Boys, and then because I'd done Chopping Mall, um, Jim Wynorski went, you you know, knew of me and said, I want to see that girl from the comet. So one, I mean, it's like Tom said, I want to see that girl. Fast times, One, that's why work begets work, because people are aware of you if they see you, and if they don't see you, then, and that was my philosophy, too, is, well, I'm going to take this movie because if, if, if I don't work, you know, how am I going to have a career and you know the agencies were saying well you have to hold out for this and you have to you know we're building a career here and i was like i have to work yeah, well it was nice that you got to kind of be the the main female lead then it, you know kind of the reg role in uh chopping mall well that was the idea i was like wow okay now i get to you know um i think it's a, i got to do something that I would not normally have gotten to do, maybe. Because they did want that vulnerability for her. You know, the fact that somebody really doesn't know what they're doing. Which sometimes as the lead, and, and you're stuck in a position of, you, you know, you're really forced to underplay and stuff like that because you, you have to tell the whole story of the movie. Sometimes it's easier to play a, a, um, a smaller part because you walk in, you react like you'd really react to a guy with an axe, which is you scream your head off, and you get killed. So there, that's that's your whole deal. But if you're the lead, and and you're going to be the the last man standing, you can't react like that to everything that happens because you got a whole movie to get through. You can't be like freaking out like you'd really freak out, <laughs> like anybody would, because you have to live. And so it's a it's a more restrained kind of thing because you've got to build the arc of the story. Whereas somebody who's coming in for to to play, you know, the third person that gets killed or the first person that gets killed just really gets to to do what you'd really do and then, of course, acts on the forehead. But um, it, it's a little bit trickier being the, the person that that lives, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I love to be the person that lives. I always thought, I can never die. I don't ever want to get killed in a movie. And then then I came to the fact that, Kelly, if you're going to get killed in a movie, you'd be a lot more movies. <laughs> It's, it, they don't really write, you know, the girl, last girl standing all the time. It's more likely that if, if you were willing to be the girl that died, you'd, you'd be in a lot more movies. But I didn't get that right away. I didn't, I don't know. It, I really didn't see the big picture in a lot of things. But I love being that person, too, so maybe it's worth it. Well, it's got to be pretty empowering. It is. It is. Well, I always had an unrealistic... Um, expectation of my own survival in real life, I think. It's that thing of, of youth when you don't, don't really believe anything's ever going to happen to you. I had that. I guess I still have that. I still have, because, you know, just by virtue of being in the entertainment industry, anybody in their right mind would not do that. It is kind of like walking into a scary movie and instead of running away screaming, you go, let's check it out. <laughs> you go that way and I'll go this way. Where no one can ever hear me if I scream. <laughs> so yeah, I guess you know. Uh, I have a friend who's a very famous magician, and he says, you know, we aren't because the, the truth is, I'm not like other people. Other people don't get up and do this stuff. 
And it certainly is a strange life to pick. It's like, yeah, I don't care about having any any kind of uh, idea about what my life is going to be like or being able to make any plans whatsoever unless I get a series. And most people would say, no, I don't think so. And I went, let's check it out. <laughs> with Chopping Mall, that was one of, you did, what, the half a dozen films with Jim Iwanorski? It was kind of a Where's Waldo thing because we got to be friends. And he would say, I get this call. I would be like, are you busy tomorrow? And I'd go, oh, no, now what? Because it would be something like, well, I'd like to get you down here and put you in a cheerleading outfit with Tracy Lords, and we're going to shoot a couple of days. I just thought it would be funny if the two of you had the same outfit on. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> or, um, I auditioned for Big Bad Mama to play one of the daughters, and I didn't get it because they used Julie McCullough instead. You know, adorable girl. And so um, he said, but you're going to be the granddaughter at the end. And I just went in there and shot that for one day. So, because again, you know, it's because it, I was a proven quantity. He knew that I was going to understand his direction, and he knew that he could depend on me. He'd throw me in there, you know. I mean, he did that with many actors, Ace Mask. Um, he always had people that he knew were, were going to come in and not give him any trouble because he works really fast, and he freaks out if there's a problem or somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to do, and he's very volatile and stuff like that, so... If he knows that you're going to come through for him, he just keeps calling you. But, you know, again, not everything is the female lead. So he'd you know, be like, great, I'll make my rent, and no one will ever see it. <laughs> ha! That's my biggest theme song. I'll make my rent, and no one will ever see it. <laughs> uh-huh. I think I'm not the only one that did that, though. No, I'm sure you're not. I mean, George Clooney's in Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. That was called I'll Make My Rent and No One Will Ever See It. <laughs> now, what are you working on these days? Um, I did a website called Hell's Kitty in which I, I got to play a, um, a medium. I, it, it's, I just saw it. In fact, um, it's coming out next year. They're going to make a movie out of it. But it's about a, a cat that's possessed. And... Um, um, he got a lot of uh, horror icons to to come in, and Doug Jones is in it. Um, Lynn Lowry and I were in that episode, and so it, it's all about this cat that's possessed. Well, the cat died, unfortunately. Oh no! So that yeah, and so um, um, they were approached about, well, can we make this a movie because it can't go on as a web series, you know, obviously. And so I guess that's what's happening there. And um, I'm going to do a short film. I'm looking. At, I think I, I want to do a play, and I hope that's going to work out. So I just keep on keeping on, you know. And there's also a movie. Well, you know, if I had a nickel for every time somebody attached me to a movie and then didn't end up happening, yeah, and it, that happens a lot. And that's nothing you can really say anything about because then you look like an idiot if it doesn't happen. Say, oh, I'm going to do this. It never comes out. You do that a few times. No one, you know, everyone's like, sure you are. So you don't say anything about it unless it's for real. I mean, we have a thing in the industry of you're not really in the movie until the check clears. You're on the set. And there's even a thing where the AD will say, congratulations, you're in the movie, which means you're in a pivotal scene that they cannot possibly cut out. It means you're in the movie. And it's the thing on the set. Okay, you're in the movie today. It means they can't cut you out. 
Let me say that one of my favorite things that they say is to, to the crew is, if you're going to stand there, go to makeup. You're in the shop. <laughs> Are you big on the uh, social media channels these days? Well, I I am now. I had this this lovely man, and he died a couple of years ago now, but he was a fan, and he said I was on on MySpace because I liked. I'm I'm kind of a closet writer too, and and they had blogs and stuff on there. And he said, "You're going to do social media," and I went, "Ew, <laughs> okay." I'm um, I'm not really all that tech savvy, but he kind of set up pages for me and stuff like that. He was just an amateur retired Navy guy who lived in San Diego, who I never met, and he did this for a couple of actors that he liked, and then he passed away uh, unexpectedly. And but he taught me enough so that I I kind of got it myself and so yeah now I really like it I you know I wouldn't I nobody you know what am I saying I didn't understand it at first who does nobody does but it's fun and I really love it so yes I am heavy into it I'm on I have a I have a, a page on on Facebook that I wish I would have had in the first place because I just had a regular Facebook page and now um. It's full up. They only let you have so many people on. And I'm trying to get people over to this page I would have picked in the first place, but I didn't know what I was doing, um, called Actress Kelly Maroney. But there's a couple other ones that are, that are one of them even is official Kelly Maroney Facebook. It's not, and it's not official. It's not me, but um, I'm trying to make them take those down, but because I can't, I don't know what they're putting up there. But I can't, you know, so. But anyway, that's the official one, actress Kelly Maroney. Then there's me. And then I usually, on all my um, social media, it's my name because I make it hard to find me, you know. I don't like having to figure out what someone's Twitter handle is. It's nice if it's just their name. I will be sure to look for you there, and we'll post links over to where people can find you when we post this episode. Okay. Oh, I forgot to tell you one other thing, too. Is, um, my fiancé is um, was a magician member at the Magic Castle. And so I got into magic, and I'm, I'm, I'm learning to be a magician. I hate to go. I'm a magician because those guys have been doing it since they're five years old. Right. But I got into it, and so that's what I'm doing. That's one of the things that I'm excited about doing now, of all things. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> and that's really weird. <laughs> no, that's so cool. I've I've always been a fan of magicians, so just to be able to do that and to learn it. It's I mean, hard. learning has to be some it's of the very most specific and exacting, and you can really screw it up. Um, it's really an interesting. Um, it's always fun to learn a different art form. You know that some of the things you know you, you'd think, oh well, that should be no problem, but it's a different art form and has to be learned. Um, so that's kind of challenging, and um. um I, you know, we'll see what comes of it. It's, I'm just having a good time with it. But if you come to Los Angeles, um, let me know. And if you like magic, I will show you, um, take you there and show you some magic. All right, we are back. I wanted to thank our guests for taking the time to talk to me. If you want to hear more of Catherine Mary Stewart, she's on our episodes about The Last Starfighter and The Apple. 
Really can't recommend that Apple episode enough. So now getting back to Night of the Comet. So we briefly mentioned some other end-of-the-world films, uh, such as uh, Stephen King's The Stand. There are some better ones out there. What were some of the ones that came to mind for you guys as you're watching this one? Uh, Eberhardt had said, actually, I think a couple of times now, he, he said about the correlation between the idea of two girls in the apocalypse and then Zombieland had two girls in the apocalypse. I have to disagree with his point, though, because he thought, well, it wasn't a dynamic that could be done again as well as it was in the 80s. But then Zombieland had the two girls, so maybe it could. But I, I think Zombieland brings up an excellent point that, you know, these two girls, Reg and Samantha, were pure in a sense that they held fast to their morals and to their character. Whereas the Zombieland girls, you know, they were conniving, horrible people. I mean, you ended up liking them, but they were pretty terrible to start off with. You know, they had compromised so much moralistically, you know. So I, I don't know. I, I can't, I certainly can't think of another end of the world movie where the heroes are females and they don't rely upon a guy because, you know, these girls would have been okay with or without Hector. Yeah, I think the only thing, like, as you're talking about end of the world and female characters, it's like, well, there's the uh, Resident Evil films, but. I don't even know if those count. I think really the only one that I really consider to be post-apocalyptic, and I don't know why this one out of all, what, five or six of these is the third one. That one is the one that feels the most true to me to be a a post-apocalyptic film. The rest of them just feel like what they are, which is video game movies. You know, the the rest of them feel like low rent Romero sometimes. Which one was the third one? (laughs) That was the one where they're in the desert in Las Vegas. Oh, okay. Alice starts to feel her powers and stuff. And there are all these, speaking of, of Stephen King's, the stand, there are all these crows that are attacking and all this kind of stuff. So that's the one that feels the, the, the truest to a post-apocalyptic movie to me. Just because of the Los Angeles of it all, I was thinking of uh, the Omega Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, which is obviously, you know, ultimate. Well, it's based on I Am Legend, which is like the ultimate like post-apocalyptic story. But, uh, you know, it's like it's, somebody says, would you rather watch like a couple like uh, San Fernando Valley, like cute blondes instead of Charlton Heston running around the uh, after the apocalypse? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll take that instead. Thank you. I don't know, though. No ascots, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's got the captain's hat or whatever. But yeah, it's just, it is kind of sh- like the only, the only more shocking probably city to see, you know, with that sparsely populated would be New York. But L.A. is kind of, you know, actually L.A. looks like that sometimes. To hear the way that they shot uh, Night of the Comet with just being lucky and, and shooting it on weekends, you know, to hear that the city was so barren on the weekends at one point yeah. during the history of it i mean you could shoot that now in detroit it wouldn't be a, an issue i haven't lived in la for a while like there are, you know sunday mornings like you can especially particularly like downtown or whatever like, there's definitely like that kind of you know you just there's that kind of quality you know that that's kind of the thing about los angeles i think that's why there's so many post-apocalyptic movies that are set there because you can definitely catch it at a time of day when you're like wow this this feels like the end of the world and and maybe it should be. <laughs> Is that what they say of New York? Like the um, footfalls on Broadway? Like if you're there 
early enough in the morning at a certain time you could hear a single person walking? I've only had that experience like once or twice. <laughs> New York is pretty... It's hard to... You're always tripping over people. It is the city that never sleeps. It is. Nobody sleeps. I mean, if it sleeps, it's it's snoring. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's probably why you guys are so angry all the time. Oh, Craig, you can't get any sleep, man. Did you guys get a chance to see The Quiet Earth? Yeah. I had seen it, you know, a long time ago to the point that... When I started watching, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen this. But um, <clears throat> I think it's interesting that, I guess, the director of The Quiet Earth, now I'm blanking on his name, that, that he hadn't seen Night of the Comet. That's just, um, that's remarkable. You you would think that if you, because Quiet Earth came out a year before, right? A year after. You'd think that you would have just been curious to see the next End of the World movie. But I, I think it's interesting that, Everything that was hopeful about Night of the Comet was not <laughs> in Quiet Earth. I guess some of the biggest things that really reminded me of one to the other was kind of like the radio station and how it's used in Night of the Comet versus how it's used in The Quiet Earth, where we've got him going on the air and recording the message and sending it out and hoping somebody will pick it up, as opposed to that creepy radio station that they go to that I mean, beautifully, beautiful set, I have to say, but so creepy to have that automatic voice there just constantly droning and that horrible DJ patter. And they think that that's going to be one of the last people on Earth and they get there and it's just a tape machine. Yeah, like that hope that kind of gets seized away or whatever. Well, and I, I suppose their reactions to it. You know, if you put two teenage girls in a radio station, they're going to want to play records. You know, you put an older man in the radio station, he'll just make the recording and go away. <laughs> yeah, he won't suddenly become Johnny Fever or something. Did you guys get any 28 days later from this one? A little bit. A little bit. I mean, yeah. I mean, like you know, that stuff starts to – I mean, as soon as you mentioned Day of the Triffids, I mean, I guess that was like the big influence on 28 Days Later. But um, – and, you know, just the fact that the people that are – the people that are out of the way of the, you know, the apocalypse, the people that kind of slept through it or whatever, I guess there's that aspect to it. I think I had a heavier 28 Days Later vibe from The Quiet Earth – and then I had a, I don't know, I guess a side quest that my brain wanted to go on of how many post-apocalyptic movies begin with a money shot of a guy laying in bed? Of course, my brain would go there, but. I guess another similarity is that it kind of goes in a direction you probably don't expect. You know, like 28 Days Later becomes this kind of like intense revenge thriller. The zombies are kind of peripheral to the action. I guess that's kind of, that's kind of similar here. Like That's a good not, point. It's not really as much about the zombie you know like you got more zombies earlier on in the movie it becomes more about the people and the conflicts between the people later on i guess that's that's the comparison and yeah quiet earth is really about the people there are no zombies in that right. one yeah well and i i guess the free you know the um the female lead in the quiet earth you know every time you see her 
she's in a zany outfit of dressed like a fairy or dressed or half dressed, you know, I don't know if I would say that's a male perspective of female freedom of just being able to wear whatever you want. But I, I think they're right. I would dress like a fairy, I guess. I'd put on wings and <laughs> dance around. Well, yeah. And like I was saying earlier, I mean, Quiet Earth is such the flip side of Night of the Comet, where it's the two men fighting over the woman and and physically, literally physically fighting over the woman at times. Whereas Night of the Comet, we've got the different relationship and it's such a different just dynamic and it it also helps that the two girls are sisters in it but you know just the they're not you know grabbing uh pipes and stuff and trying to beat each other on the head in order to get hector so i mean he's worth it and everything but don't get me wrong but it it's it's interesting to see how the two relationships play out and to have these two love triangles and just also with this one with with the quiet earth we also have race as a factor but it again, it plays out so differently. I mean, they don't really even mention that you know Hector is of a different race and that that's going to be an issue. Whereas with Quiet Earth, there's such a you know a chasm between the white people and the Aborigines. Then it's just like, oh yeah, there's an, almost an immediate distrust of this guy, and you know he's got the earring and everything. So it's kind of a nice way to set these two apart. It really is interesting that neither comet like has that aspect. You know, without address, I think like at one point Regina calls him like Hector or something. That's the closest, you know, she's kind of mocking his name a little bit. But that just seems like a teenage thing to do. It's not like it's not a, a racial thing or anything. Right. She doesn't say it in some sort of uh, Speedy Gonzalez affect or something. I mean, I wouldn't say this is like the most technically proficient movie and certainly not the most sophisticated storytelling wise. But there there's some like really advanced kind of cultural ideas going on. Yeah, and even that she brings up that one of Hector's problems might be that he's alone at the end of the world without a guy. You know, she's like, hey, he lives in L.A., kind of like uh, Jerry Seinfeld. He, he's neat. He's clean. He's single. What's going on? And, you know, I, I like that that passes by without any sort of like, ew, or anything. Well, she does use a word that we're not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that's, you know, that's 1984. What are you going to do? Yeah. doesn't feel as mean as it possibly could. No, yeah, it's definitely not mean. So is there anything else we should say about Night of the Comet? Well, what about that motorcycle riding? I, I love that if you were to, I suppose, jot down a few character traits, like Regina can ride a motorcycle, she's proficient with firearms, reading that list you would have a totally different idea of who the character was. You know, you think of, well, like Resident Evil or, you know, these Red Sonja types, you know, who um, are these badass steroid-pumped women, you know. And, well, I guess Resident Evil isn't, but um, steroid-pumped anyway. But uh, it's just interesting that she hops on this motorcycle and she's riding it. Like she rides motorcycles all the time and it, and it never goes any further than that. It, it's just like a, a character ability that's shown to you and then it moves on. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that definitely struck me about this move. Like, I mean, cause the, just the fact, you know, they're, they're, they're military brands, you know, like their dad taught them how to defend themselves, how to use guns, you know, it, it, it's just, it's an interesting, you know, you mentioned it before, Mike, it's just, so you don't, you don't, 
it's interesting that dynamic because you don't ever meet that guy, but he's got an influence on how things kind of pan out. You know, like like Regina can definitely take care of herself. And it's also interesting the fa- just the fact that like their names are Regina and Samantha, and they call each other Reggie and Sam. You know, they kind of give each other uh, more male nicknames. You know, well, that's a keen kind of, eye, John. I hadn't it, picked up on that. It's just it's just interesting how they kind of like take on these like um, without ever losing their girlishness like they just take on the traditional like male you know it's, it's just it's it's like i said it's just really interesting and just another thing i wanted to say about the movie is just like i'm sure it was a budgetary thing because it wasn't a huge budget movie but this movie feels like really sparse you know the population like you'll you'll meet like when a zombie shows up it's like one zombie you know what i mean it's not like a horde of zombies i think like the only crowd scene in the movie is at the beginning and that that almost felt like stock footage of the people like celebrating the comet you know like there's something about there just feel like so few people in this movie like it feels like a handful of people and that kind of makes it a little more intimate and like i think the people that that love this movie really love this movie because you're really you're just there with like just a couple people and you know, you're there with Regina and Samantha and, and Hector, and it kind of makes you feel a little closer to those characters. You know, and I think that's cool. Like, you know, it's like sometimes the budget works out. The fact that yeah. they didn't have like they didn't have the budget to have like these hordes of zombies like attacking, and and it kind of it works. The character dynamics in um, Night of the Comet is a step away from so many of the end of the world movies because a lot of times it's almost like an apocalyptic Breakfast Club. Of how everyone gets along under, I suppose, certain circumstances, but wouldn't in their natural habitat. But here, like um, Mike had pointed out earlier, that the biggest threats weren't the zombies and such. They were other people. So I guess the whole Breakfast Club idea wasn't taking place here. People were annoying or, I guess, dangerous before this, and they still are. Yeah, you don't have that ragtag group of lovable losers or, yeah, that mixed bag of people who all end up at the same shopping mall after the zombie apocalypse happens. It is nice that this is a pretty tight-knit group, and, you know, at least two of them are from the same background, pretty much, you know, so we we definitely know that uh, they're cut from the same cloth. So, yeah, it is nice that we don't have to suffer through <laughs> that kind of stuff. And we don't get people at each other's throats all the time. We don't have, you know, so much infighting between Sam and, and Reg and, and Hector with this. They they get along pretty well once they get along. Another little odd bit is the DMK thing, Danny Mason Keener, you know. It's like the, be- yes. the beginning of the movie is Regina playing the game, and she's got her initials in the game, and she notices that somebody else like beat her score and he had the initials DMK and we don't ever meet that person until the end. And it turns out to be a potential love interest for Samantha, not Regina. It's just, it's an interesting, like, I don't know, you know, I don't know much about making a, a connection thematically. It's just, it's an, that's an interesting way to kind of, you know, sum up a, a, a script, you know, a story, you know, which isn't another nice thing. Whereas like, you know, they they taught that Samantha wasn't originally supposed to survive the film. Oh, okay. but but then when I think like that they set that that bit up so early in the film 
the whole DMK thing, and then it pays off so well at the end. It's like, how early was that change as far as Samantha living? Because that really ties back to the beginning of the film so well. Yeah, it does. It's just it's a weird it's a weird payoff, you know. I mean, it's I like it. It's just it's odd because it's like it's like that's part of Regina's story that becomes Samantha's story at the end. Well, there's a wonderful theory being posited on uh, IMDb that um, if you're good at video games, you can survive the end of the world because Reg and DMK both did it. So, And I'd like to think that's true. It helps if you can play Tempest. Let's just put it that way. Maybe an old fart like me can survive the apocalypse. Yeah, I've got, I've got faith in you. <laughs> Thank you. And if there is an apocalypse, I, I hope I'm in L.A. and not Australia because, God, how frightening would Australia be? You know, with nothing to keep the poisonous everything at bay. (laughs) (laughs) Those rabbits would take right over. (laughs) All right, we're going to take another break and play a trailer for next week's show. I have never had a job before, but I can assure you that I am very excited about this opportunity. All I need is a typist who can answer the phone. I've reached the office of Mr. Edward Gray. <laughs> it's very dull work. I like dull work. I'm not here. How'd it go? I got it. This letter has three typing errors in it. I'm sorry, I'm... I'm... Type it again. This needs more sugar. Six copies of these. What is wrong with you? You can get a much bigger voice out of that tiny throat. This is the office of Mr. E. Edward Gray. (laughs) I'm the type of guy who wants to get married and have a kid. (laughs) If you need any more typing, I can come back later. Thank you, Miss Holloway. Good night. Come into my office. Finally. This isn't just about typos. It's your behavior. What about my behavior? It's very bad. I'm very fond of you. I'm your secretary. If we can fully experience pain, we can live a more meaningful life. He's the best. Bathing? Something sexual. There are other ways to show your feelings. Sure, don't have We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? <laughs> found someone to love in a way that feels right. Just a scoop of cream potatoes. Four peas. As much ice cream as you'd like to eat. Could you get me a cup of coffee? Do you really want to be my secretary? Yes, I do. All right, that's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Secretary, where I'll be joined by Rachel Kramer Bustle. Until then, I want to thank this week's special guest co-hosts, John Abrams and Angela Mack. John, what has been keeping you busy these days, sir? Daily Grindhouse. Uh, I'm the editor of that site now, and uh, we're we're getting ourselves on a schedule where we have regular columns Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. Really trying to bring stuff to people on a regular basis and uh, there's yeah there's a lot of fun stuff over there i have to say if i wasn't if i wasn't running it and if i was totally objective i would still i would still go to that site so dailygrindhouse.com 
Very cool. And you have like a Twitter or a Facebook or any of that fun stuff? Are you, are you a part of the social media scene? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, you can find me. I'm shackled to all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I would just say go to Daily Grindhouse. You can follow. You can find my Twitter and Facebook from all that. How about you, Angela? Are you on the social feeds here and all this stuff? You want people following you on Twitter? Um, well, they can follow me on Facebook under Angela Mack. I, I have a Twitter, but I guess I just don't think in that few of words, so it doesn't work for me. I need I need a thousand <laughs> words or I can't say what I'm thinking. I hear they're supposed to raise the limit one of these days. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Which I think kind of defeats the purpose of Twitter. Yeah. But so many people have like five tweets to say one thing and you know, you read them out of order, you don't know which one should come first or last. I kind of like how Twitter like forces us all to like be Mitch Hedberg. Yeah, I think Kanye would definitely be happy if they raise the limit. Properly rant. I, I like the I like the restriction, you know. It's good it's good uh, editing practice. Well, thank you both for coming on the show and thanks to everybody for listening. It's been a great five years and here's looking forward to five more. So why don't you stop on over at our website, projection-booth.com to give us some feedback, link on over to our iTunes page where you can rate and review the show. Or, you know, I know Kanye's just about destitute, but I'm still going to ask for some money over at our Patreon page. I think that Kanye has made more on his fucking GoFundMe than we have on our Patreon over the last, like, however many months, and he's been begging for, like, a week. Come on, guys. What the hell? (laughs) He's influential, you know. That's true. If Kanye Kanye knew about this podcast, he would love it. Well, I pretty much stole the whole idea from him, you know. (laughs) He's 50% more talented than I am. (laughs) At at the very least. Uh, this This is a great podcast. It's an honor to be on it. I just have to say that I listen to it as a fan, so... Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I, I hate to see St. Mary go, but I'm glad I got in. So <laughs> <laughs> You left the wow. door open. <laughs> the sea doesn't even cold. Oh, my and Angel's God. vying for it, man. <laughs> well, look out. So, yeah, go to our website, projection-boot.com. Do those things. And those are just a few ways that you can help us take over this post-apocalyptic world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.